Hello and welcome to the 250. Ho, 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 it's a Christmas special. Ho, ho, ho. Humbug. Uh, I'm Darren. I'm Andrew. And I'm Philip. And this year, we're well, this week, we're doing a very festive Christmas special. I feel like this is the most festive we'll be. <laughs> we're <laughs> we're discussing this podcast. Like, to Yee-haw. set up an expectation now for, <laughs> for, listeners. for the listeners that it's like, oh, Christmas. Yeah, they seem so cheerful and happy and full of mirth. Uh, but yes, so um, we we discussed this issue last year. We kind of knew this was going to be an issue going forward. Because in our first year for our Christmas special, we did, obviously, we did It's a Wonderful Life. Last year, we did Die Hard. And then we were like, well, what else is left on the 250 that is Christmas themed? Die Hard was our shortest episode. <laughs> so, really? like, the easiest to, well... Because to, everybody to... loves Die Hard. Well, it was also, I think, there were time constraints as well on the part, because we we did record that one quite close to Christmas. We've been a bit more, we've been a bit better organisationally this year. Well, let's see how this turns out before we judge. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's also, it is our shortest episode. It's the only one that clocks in, I think, under an hour by a couple of seconds. Oh! Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 uh, we're, we're generally between two and three hours. <laughs> Sometimes between, once between three and four. Under an hour, I'm impressed. All I can say is that is her, her. <laughs> Her. One of the shortest episodes <laughs> was um, Le Catcher Son Coup. Yes, as well. That was in a thing. Oh, I'm not taking the rap for that. An hour and 50. <laughs> or credit. Um, but yeah, it's remarkable because... When, when we had respect for our guest's time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now we've gone mad with power. We've been yeah. doing this for over two years. We can just do whatever the hell we want, Andrew. Including, apparently, name LA Confidential as a Christmas movie. Um, I absolutely would. It's my Christmas movie. Yeah, well, this is it. We mentioned I mentioned this problem that we were having to fill. And I was like, look, we may have to go to the bottom 100 to pick a movie to discuss. Oh, like, no, you don't. Not on my watch. Like, say, Saving Christmas or something like that. Or back when we were discussing the Santa Claus versus the Martians. But no, no, Phil jumped to our rescue. Let's not talk smack on Saving Christmas in case we have to do that next year. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, we have at least one more tangential Christmas movie left on the list. Okay, yeah. I know that Iron Man 3 isn't on the (laughs) list. No, not anymore. Um, I like that. Or Lethal Weapon. No. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Listeners listeners probably have a good idea of what it is. Do you want to know what it is? Or will we save that for next year? What, um, What, What the other tangentially Christmas movie on the list is. is Phil probably gets this. I, I don't actually. Okay. I mean, we've 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 already done La La Land. That's as Christmas here. <laughs> this is. happens to be because uh, there is a sequence where there are some Christmas decorations. The other one is the apartment. Ah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so that, that's the kind of response. Yeah, but so yeah, you suggested that we cover this as a Christmas movie, and I guess that sort of puts a little bit of onus on us to to argue, like having sat down and having watched the movie or rewatched the movie. I assume in many cases. Do we believe that L.A. Confidential is a Christmas movie on anything more than a technicality of having bloody Christmas? Probably not, but I don't care. I watch it every Christmas anyway. Yeah, it's not a story of goodwill to all men. No. Um, Certainly not. It's not they, a story about silent nights. They, there, there isn't, there isn't um, the, 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 the birth of a child um, in a manger. <laughs> or people or, coming to bring him gifts or I mean, anything I, like that. I can see that Robocop is an Easter story. <laughs> yeah, but, because it involves a resurrection. 
Yeah, and a crucifixion. Yeah. Um, Way to, for you guys just to shoehorn in Robocop at any <laughs> given opportunity on this oh. thing. We've reached the point where the podcast not only points out recurring tropes in movies, but has its own recurring tropes. And yes, Robocop can That's be That's how you know you've made it. Yeah, Robocop can be shoehorned into every conversation. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, um, is this is this a story about goodwill to all men, peace on earth? Is this like, because you can make a case that Die Hard is a story about a family being reunited and that's a Christmas movie in a spiritual existential sense. Whereas this, does this have any of that? It takes place at Christmas. And And also this is a story of kind of redemption and trying to find your own goodwill, I guess. And some people really don't get it, but hey ho. I think I I think it's the kind of um, dirty uh, margins um, out, outside people's kind of uh, regular lives. There's some. There's some. There, there, it's a. It's 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 a kind of like this holiday season. Um, <laughs> spare a thought for spare, the <laughs> spare spare a thought for the corruption in society. <laughs> the prostitutes who had plastic surgery to look like movie stars. The police officers who are probably complicit in horrible crimes. Um, spare a thought and a moment for those people. Oh, ho, 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 but this, ho. Is, this is the thing. Do actually while we're while we're on the subject of this, before we jump into talking about the film, does anybody you mentioned you watch this every Christmas? Yeah, and I think that everybody has their own sort of alternative Christmas movies, as it were. Like I'll readily concede that I wrap my Christmas presents every year to Batman Returns. I think Batman Returns is the perfect Christmas movie in Wait some sense. So you like is anyone like no one else can watch that with you because you're wrapping presents? Yeah. Or do different people have to walk out at different points <laughs> I like that. during yeah. Batman yeah. Returns? It's like, all right, Dad, leave. Yeah, it's the, the, you the, can come back um, in five minutes. Uh, Chris or uh, Walken is. Oh no, I, I I can't spoil any movie. <laughs> any, any movie outside of the spoilers. I, I so just Chris Walken's in this. Yeah. I just like this thought that whenever Batman Returns comes out, people have to leave Darren's presence. It's okay. We have to go now. Darren is watching the movie with the lady in the skin tight leather. We must leave him alone. <laughs> Do, do oh, you, you you know that there was a person on that set whose job it was to help talcum powder up Michelle Pfeiffer. Does they were the luckiest person in the world. Where all the all the presents are in bags, aside aside from the ones from Santi that arrive on on um, on, on the night or, um, <laughs> of Christmas Eve, uh, Christmas morning. Um, aside from that, all the presents are in bags. But not and then that. you tell people to leave the room. <laughs> so that you can wrap their specific thing. Really? Okay, yeah, that's it's weird. Like, leave the room and don't come, come, come back until you're so, told. And then, so, that, are, are there groups? That's the way it's always been in 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 my house. Okay. And then somebody might come in and, and and they say, "My eyes are closed. My eyes are closed. I'm just looking for the." And and then you kind of like hand them what the, the keys or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is this like so? All of you are rapping together. Is it there's the, the, the Quinn family are together? We're like a rap group. Yeah. <laughs> oh God! It's like the Wu Tang Clan. I I, I thought Jaron would be the one getting the first puns in. That nope. I quite a appreciated that thank you very much but yeah so I Bat- sh- yeah i should have said we're we're like the wu-tang clan yeah. but batman Wu-Tang Wu-Tang clan? sorry yeah darren no rap music sometimes good but yeah no uh, uh, that would be my alternative christmas movie would always be batman returns because it, it's a great movie about being sort of depressed and misanthropic and sort of grinchy at christmas in that it's this mean-spirited vindictive sort of like deeply cynical work that just happens to be set at the most wonderful time of the year. And that always sort of like appeals to me in the push and pull against the traditional Christmas movie. I mean, but, how much of it though? 
<laughs> how, how, how much of this movie is at, at, at Christmas? It's 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 kind of just the beginning. Yeah, and I think they get three or maybe four Christmas songs in, um, like Silent Night. This um, one that we're talking about, like Confidential. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. were we talking about? Oh, no, we no. were talking about Batman uh, Returns. Returns. Let That's me check. Proper, What's this yeah. episode about again? Yeah. Why am I here? But um, so Andrew, do you have like a, an atypical Christmas movie? Like, would you have a personal favorite? Christmas movie that isn't really a Christmas movie. Um, Christmas movie that isn't really a Christmas movie. I guess like, no. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think. Like, um, Home Alone is fairly. That's a Christmas uh, movie. Fairly clearly a yeah. Christmas movie. It's not a, a really that atypical, is it? Well, I don't know. It depends on how much you like watching people being tortured by flying implements. That thing's a horror movie, man. Oh yeah, well that's it. There's the an the impale being Skyfall impaled on a is, is like Skyfall is Home Alone as a thriller basically as well. Oh yeah, but it's it's like let's stop um, torturing thieves for for just one day of the year, <laughs> so so that we can get together as a family because yeah. that's that's the the ultimate the ultimate like uh, con- conclusion yeah. of like um, actually I can't spoil it, but let's just say Kevin McAllister finally realizes that his job. Is less important <laughs> than his family. Than his family. Thank you. <laughs> I like this. Yeah. Um, but uh, let, let's talk a little bit about LA Confidential then, because I'm going to assume that all three of us have seen this before, have we? Multiple times. Yes, um, I, 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 I have seen it before. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan. Um, Phil, do you remember the first time that you saw it? Um, it was one Christmas. I came on TV, and uh, I was raptured, enraptured from start to finish. And Andrew, do you have your own like memory of having seen it, or is it just a movie that you always remember having seen? Is it so one of those? Just a rapture movie, then. <laughs> <laughs> that's yes, a, that's that's the, that's the religious connection movie. right yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. See, uh, religious connections and rapture. Sorry, sorry, that's uh, that's a bit of a tangent. <laughs> a bit. As opposed to our usual like old, tight structure, old dirty Baptist. <laughs> and Jezza is. Oh, was that it? That's what um, his name really was. Yeah, wasn't it? yeah me- Methodist man. <laughs> hey, oh. hey. That well played. Well played. Uh, no, I, my, I had a friend of mine um, um, who, who who was telling me how to, how to, how to, how their friends kind of riff on members <laughs> of the Wu Tang Clan if they were uh, re- religious uh, figures. Yeah, sorry. And anyway. But um, do you remember the first time that you saw LA Confidential? I do not. Um, <laughs> I um, must have seen it, I would imagine, in the early noughties or late nineties, I guess. Oh, okay. They, like this, this, this came, it came out, out in nineteen ninety-seven, didn't it? It yeah. came out ninety-seven. Yeah. Yeah. I figure, I figure it's around then. So I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have seen it in the in in the cinema because I would have been like uh, ten or eleven. Um, Same and, as that. Uh, I probably wouldn't have been able to see it that soon after um, because I don't think my uh, folks would have let me. It sounds like you did like me. You were probably in your mid-teens and it came on TV maybe at Christmas, who knows, Mm. and watched it that way. That's what happened to me. I think it was was big enough that it would have gotten a uh, Network 2 film of the week. Or or an RT1 um, sort of midweek movie thing, yeah. Yeah, or possibly yeah. even waited for a, a premiere over Christmas week. That actually makes sense. Yeah, I can I can see it getting something like that. 
I actually, I actually remember this because this is, and we talked about this on the, the you podcast. You seem to remember a lot of movies. Um. <laughs> it's funny I'm on a movie podcast and that movie's uh, being very little to me. Yeah, yeah. Maybe like, I saw it when I was a teen. I'm amazing <laughs> on the details. It's but, like like Homer Simpson. It's like, do you remember where you were when the when the moon landed? <laughs> <laughs> yummy, yummy, yummy! I got love in my tummy. Tangent. <laughs> Quick to Darren watching, like... Um, the moon landing uh, enraptured with... The- <laughs> imagining Ryan Gosling's face. Um, but yeah, no, I watched... I remember this because this is one of the... We talked about the podcast before. Like, one of the ways that I came to film was through family. And part of that was my granddad showing me films that were horribly inappropriate when I was a kid. <laughs> so watching The Shining when I was, like, six or seven. That sort of stuff. And when I was growing up, my parents would do... Every weekend, they'd go down to Extravision and they'd rent out two movies. And they come back these two movies, and we watched them Friday night, Saturday Sorry, night. You 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 weren't there. When I was uh, when as I got older, I was brought in and allowed to consult on the process. But they um, made the choice. Oh no, they made the choice. I was there. Yeah, I watched it with them like that. No, I mean, yeah, they, they, they like it's it's a children's job to kind of be in there an extra vision <laughs> nagging, making the trying ch- to make their parents make uh, poor choices. <laughs> No, no, but I eventually reached that stage. But I wouldn't have been at that stage in, say, 1997 or 98 when it would have come out on VHS, I imagine. No. It would have been the time it was for, yeah, uh... to bring us back and make us feel really old. But the thing is that on... Um, I remember my parents bringing back this one and watching it because it was such a striking film. Because I would have been about 10 years old at the time. And then and... they came with this glamorous thing with Kim Basinger all over the front of us in an 18 cert. And Darren was, Darren was rubbing his hands together. See, this is why I don't need to go down to Extravision. My parents take care of this. There's also a story about my dad bringing back American Pie. Uh, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> they, they have... well, I, I, I think I watched American Pie with my brother and my dad. Yeah. It was like one of those ones where mum was away. Like, and, and afterwards, did, you turn, did your dad turn to you and say, well, we'll just tell her that? I think it's better, better for, for, for kids to watch those yeah. sort of movies. <laughs> oh, sorry, to... sorry. I stepped on your... I'm going to profoundly disagree with that <laughs> one. Um, just people in general should not watch American Pie. No, because I, I, I remember my dad bringing it back, not quite knowing what it was, thinking it was a funny teen comedy. And by the time it had started it playing, <laughs> that's a fair point. By the time it had started playing, we'd all realized what it was and we sort of committed to it. Uh, my personal favorite remark was during there's a sequence involving. It's as if it wasn't a funny, funny teen it, comedy. It, it, it it's is a funny so teen, funny. And it's a gross funny, out sex comedy. It is, yeah. which as you can imagine is great fun to watch with your parents. Oh, yeah. My particular memory of it is my mother turning around at one point here in the film, there's a joke involving what young men do with their socks, apparently. Oh. And she turns around to me and says, You're washing your own socks from now on, young man. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's fantastic. But, I'm sorry. I, I, I think in 1998. Was that when uh, something about Mary came out? Yeah, I feel yes. like I saw that in the cinema with my parents. You're that buying was... your own hair gel now, young well, that, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's impressive. Yeah, because I, I remember seeing that with my parents through the Mooney family movie night, and not getting what that was that she was putting in her hair. And I was like, "What's that?" And Dad's like, "Oh, it's hair gel. It's just funny hair gel he's got on." And and did you ever find out? <laughs> it's hair gel, right? This is turning less from a podcast into a therapy session. <laughs> but yes, LA Confidential oh, for no. fuck's sake. Oh. <laughs> Our <laughs> listeners have spoken. Yeah. They, wa- they want Darren to get to the point and me to derail it. And this is not, <laughs> this is not how the podcast every, is. Every week we have allies of Andrew, allies of Darren. I don't know which side I'm on anymore. They're locked in an internal, an internal battle. But yeah, let's talk about LA Confidential. Right? I, this is sounding more like a, the plot to a Terrence Malick film. <laughs> Order. 
Disorder. <laughs> Darling. Andrew. Always you wrestle inside me. I love the I love the idea that yeah, American pie. Um, you know, sort of uh Yeah. Anyway, but <laughs> The thing is, so LA Confidential, right? And I imagine that we are all big fans of LA Confidential, so let's just jump into asking the questions. Do you think that this movie belongs on the list of the top 250 movies ever made, Phil? And I always say with with the caveat, the top 250 films of all time from all around the world, probably not, but it worked. It's a good try. Really? I would have thought this would be like a slam dunk for you. I would have thought, like we... Oh, don't get me wrong. I love this film. It's a personal favourite, sure. But in terms of the top 250 best films ever made, stretch. Yeah, we, I, I th- so what, what's, what's movie number 250? Oh, yeah, what's the like, cutoff? Like, what, what's what's the, 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 the movie that's... Um, this has to be not better good than enough getting... to be to be any higher. Than I, I I don't know. Probably some obscure thing that Belatar drew influence from at some point. I don't know. I mean, this again, this film is wonderful. But you're talking about all the films ever made, right? Let's imagine that L.A. Confidential is an obscure. <laughs> it might be in my. It will most definitely be in my uh, top one hundred. My uh, top fifty. It'll be in my top 50 personal favourites of all right. time. Put it uh, that way. Hold on to that thought. because well, we'll no, he's answered the, se- the second question. <laughs> this is what, we, this is what happened. Hold on to that thought. Yeah. He just said. <laughs> Snatch it back in. Because we're going to circle back around and ask it again. This Christmas podcast is not going entirely how I imagined it. But it's and perfect <laughs> for Christmas. It's like a dysfunctional family arguing. <laughs> it it's ideal for Christmas. Fantastic. Christmas is over. Yeah. Cancelled. Andrew, Cancelled. what about yourself? I will turn this. And we're not even around. drunk <laughs> yet. Um, oh, it is Christmas! Actually, we should have a drink. We do have drinks. We do have drinks. We do. Um, oh, you, you, Phil is. Yeah, Phil I'm is driving. driving though. Ah, and also this is disorganized <laughs> enough. Pay, listeners, pay attention. Um, Andrew, bad influence. <laughs> we'll, we'll, Andrew, we'll give him a can get... of beer on his way out the door, <laughs> like as a, Sorry, as a parting Christmas gift. We'll wrap it in a little bow there. Andrew, would you like to go get yourself a beer? I will at the spoiler zone, yeah. Okay. But Andrew, would you consider this to be one of the top 250 movies ever made? I would consider this to be the, one of the top 250 movies ever made. Oh, now you're now, just making me look really, <laughs> really backpedally. Well, no, no. I mean, I, I haven't seen as many movies as you guys have. But this um, this is a movie that, for me, is 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 fairly close to perfect. It, ha- it has... It has an awful lot of what I want in a movie. Um, and some of the things that it doesn't have that I kind of look for in a movie, it it kind of grabs me for not having them. As, um, as in? As in the kind of... Um, I don't want to talk about it too much, but yeah. the... the, the there is there. Let's just say there, there's there's a song um, at the end of this movie... Um, Called accentuate the positive, um, and um, and don't mess with it, uh, Mister In Between. And this is very much a, a movie that that messes with uh, <laughs> Mister In Between and doesn't so, quite accentuate the positive. Well, uh, the, the, no, I I I I I don't think um, I don't think this is an entirely um, cynical. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's 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 an entirely pessimistic movie. I think this is a very kind of kind of raw it feels kind of um authentic but when it comes to kind of taking 
uh, moral lessons uh, away from you um, is it's something that you can kind of wrestle with. God bless us, everyone. <laughs> all right, so Phil, I hope you're holding on to that thought because here comes the second question. Would this be on your own personal 250? See previous response. Okay, that's that's all we're getting apparently. No, no, but I mean, this would be in your top 50. Oh, yes, yeah, it's, it's a big, big favourite of mine. I mean, like I say, it is a film I watch every Christmas. And if that isn't a favourite, I don't know what is. And what is it that you love about it? Like, I mean, not to get too specific or anything like that, but what is it that, like, what is it about the movie that just speaks to you that it's like, this is one of my 50 favourite films ever? Because as Andrew pointed out, you have seen a lot of films, you know? You've seen, <laughs> there are so many. What gets this into those upper echelons? Well, it's... It's a colourful and uh, yet dark, very narratively and thematically dark film, but it's also just remembers to be relentlessly entertaining. It's it's a happy combo, and I'm always delighted to go back to it just for those reasons. In that, you know, it's plumbing the depths, but in in a way that's uh, wonderfully produced and wonderfully acted, and just uh, goes out the clappers. It's great it is it is an astoundingly well-made film and in fact i suspect we're going to talk a bit more about that in the spore zone in terms of like how the film works and how the film sort of exists and that interesting divide that you mentioned there between it you having difficulty arguing that it's maybe one of the top 250 movies ever made but it being one of the 50 that you love the most which is kind of it's an interesting divide to have particularly given how often those two questions that we ask can seem to be the same one Oh, I'm always well, keen to stress that that is not the case because, you know, you know me, Darren, I'm very much a stickler for this kind of thing. Personal taste is extremely, extremely subjective and you people should know that. God bless us, everyone. Andrew, Humbug. Sorry. The, 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 the distinction we're drawing between the two questions, it kind of reminds me of, I, I was reading a play by Tom Stopper. It's the real thing. Hmm. Um, and... He's asked to come on Desert Island Discs and he's asking he's asking his wife, like, what was that name of what was the name of that classical piece of music that was playing out the window that time? And it's like, you don't even know the name of the song. Why do you want that to be your Desert Island Discs? Why don't you just choose like something you actually like, like the Righteous Brothers or Buddy Holly? And it's like, no, I can't put any of that frivolous stuff <laughs> on, on the like I'm a serious playwright. They can't, <laughs> they can't know that I that I that I like um, uh, pop music. And it, it, it's 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 kind of like that distinction between what people like and what they think is good. So it, 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 like, oh, it, 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 um, just because I like it doesn't mean it should be on the top 250. It, 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 um, uh, there, I'm sure there's, there's, there's very difficult wordy movies. That's, <laughs> that, that's not the point. Can I just stress really? that I think this film is both very great and just good. I, I think it's a very well-made film, but I enjoy it as well. Just, mm. you know. I mean, and this is, this is the thing. Like, I, I, I helped design the three questions. And the reason why I distinct, I sort of came, I, the reason why I thought it was interesting. Sorry separate, you did now, aren't you? I, no, no, I'm never sorry. Never <laughs> apologize. It's a sign of weakness, Phil. But no, I mean the, um, sorry, this is hilarious to me that I'm saying this. But the <laughs> thing, that, the reason that I split up the two questions and the reason that I think they're different is not the reason that you suggest, which is an element of like classism or shame Classism. or like okay but an idea that you know well where it comes you from. have you have movies that you take home to your parents and you have movies that you enjoy in the privacy of your own home or whatever the distinction is that that you little you bit should, of rough but yeah that, you know, <laughs> that you should be ashamed that you know, like you should be ashamed of liking a farley yes american pie so, is my bit on the side it's, it's not that it's not that at all it's more an argument in terms of like 
can you, if you can measure the worth of a film in terms of the contribution that it made to cinema, in terms of the contribution that it made towards the art form or the evolution of the art form, or defining what a movie is or what it shapes, whether it has a worth that is measured objectively. And like I would, I would openly say in most of the cases, like the films that I think belong on the 250, but that I don't personally wouldn't rank on my own 250 are films that I consider important to like the development of cinema as an art form, but I just don't like. It's not deserving to be on the 250. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Deserves got nothing to do with no, it. That's not, there's not like a final bar that you have to pass where it's like, well, you have the votes. Yeah. It will take <laughs> but, you into the panel meeting and the board of the IMDb sit there and say, well, you do have the votes, but uh, your contribution to cinema history has been rather substandard Deadpool 2. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think like that's why I thought it was an interesting distinction to make. In terms of arguing, it's like, if, does this does this deserve to be on the list according to like people uh, whose opinions matter? That's not <laughs> what I mean. That's and, and that's that's an exaggeration. Objectively, though, I've <laughs> I've let us down. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. um, is this an objectively good movie? That's not what it means at all. It's I've let us down a terrible <laughs> tangent, and I'm very very sorry no, to our it's, listeners. It's a, it's a debate that we've been waiting to have for two years and three months, apparently. Why does it have to happen on my watch? Can we just Back well confident. The, Finally, it's bubbled over. The, the, this is our war against Christmas, where we talk about uh, kind of boring podcast stuff. Yeah, because nobody <laughs> listens to the episode instead anyway. of reindeers and and uh, cheerful things. But no, I okay. That that is the reason why I split those two questions because I think there is a difference in arguing like what a movie contributes to culture and cinema versus whether or not. It's good, and you like it, and you love it, and you adore it. Yeah, Which and I whether do. or not, like you cherish it. And I, I would kind of agree with the questions. I'd be more sort of along Phil's line, and that I think that this is an exceptionally well-made movie. I think it's a fantastic made movie. I adore this movie. It would probably be in one of my top two hundred fifty movies ever made. Is it a film that pushes the medium forward? Is it a film that, if you were compiling a list of two hundred fifty most important movies ever made, I don't know by what standards you'd measure that or whatever, but I'm not sure that this would be on that. I'd, I don't know. That's it's a good feeling, really. The, the, like, we're, we're kind of thinking of um, judging movies by their contribution to the medium versus, versus kind of as, as work, works of art. So, like, like, like as, as, as in, is it pushing forward cinema? Yeah. Um, so there's lots of very, uh, there's lots of movies that aren't very good that do that. push forward cinema. I'll be honest, I'm kind of confusing myself now about what way this question is going. I mean... (laughs) Okay, I... Can I just say I like Uh, the film? I like the film. I like the film too. I like all the films. Let's ask the third question then. Do you like this film? Yeah. That's it. We're scrapping the three questions and just asking one because apparently it leads to contentious discussions. This is why you don't discuss politics at Christmas, people. Rarely leads to contentious discussions. (laughs) Just this once. That's the... the, Like, another reason why... Sorry, anyway. Okay. We're we're not meant to fall out until we've decided to have a hiatus. That's it, exactly. Myself and Andrew, when the podcast needs a break, we're going to fall out. We're, we're, we're going to cr- end on an argument, but nobody will know that it's not a real argument because they haven't listened to our Christmas episode. Yeah, yeah. So it's fantastic. I mean, what is Christmas for except arguments amongst ourselves? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's just um, playing Monopoly. But here's an anaglass forever. But okay, finally, third question, which is, if the listener who is listening to this podcast... If they're still listening. If they're still listening. If they, if they haven't, or if they're not listening. Because I think we point out the, like, the irony, like our Christmas-rated episodes are surprisingly low-rated. 
As I wonder as, why. <laughs> <laughs> because we do stuff like this. But um, if the listener hasn't listened, uh, sorry, hasn't watched um, LA Confidential, hasn't seen it yet, should they pause the podcast, run out, watch it right away, presumably at Christmas? Should they gather the family around? What would you recommend it, Phil? Yes, wholeheartedly. And yeah, I would say if you haven't seen the movie, um, go ahead and watch the movie. And if you have seen the movie but haven't listened to the rest of this podcast, don't pause the podcast and continue listening. <laughs> Just all the time. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I did love that the idea of like, most podcasts take a week off at Christmas. We decided that we'd push ahead because the argument was people get phones at Christmas and they want to subscribe to podcasts. So yeah. we want to be there for you. What you're wondering is like, who who's who's doing all of the work around the turkey and all of that sort of stuff. We don't have traditional Christmas dinner because the podcast matters more. <laughs> Cheers. Anyway, join us on the other side of the spoiler zone. When somebody wants you, somebody needs you, Christmas is a joy of joy. But friends, when you're lonely, you'll find that it's only a thing for little girls. Little boys, may all your days be merry, your seasons full of cheer. But till it's January, I'll just go and disappear. Oh, Santa may have brought you some stars for your shoes, but Santa only brought me the blue. Brightly packaged tinsel covered Christmas blues. So, Phil, what is LA Confidential about for you? Now, I knew this question was coming. Um, right. I. L- Every week for the sad. past 110 weeks. <laughs> Which I, I haven't been on all of them. It's like, hey, Darren, I'm I'm I'm, I'm here. Why'd you why you call me over? You call me over. <laughs> oh no! Oh, no yeah. <laughs> why are those lights coming over the hill in the distance? Is it a monster? <laughs> um, okay, so what does it mean to me? Um, I when it came down to the prep for this, I kept thinking back to our episode about Chinatown, to which LA Confidential is perhaps inevitably quite largely indebted, and. Um, at that episode, I said that Chinatown was important to me because it was wonderfully made, but it was such a, also a very bitter and almost cynical look at the world in which its characters operate. This is... LA Confidential feels like the other side of the same coin to me, in that it works in much the same way. It has a similarly labyrinthine plot and deals with a lot of the same themes and all in the same town. But it's... It's an altogether more hopeful film. And because of that, perhaps a bit more classically entertaining, a little more accessible, perhaps, which some people might see as a downside. I don't necessarily agree. I just think that as it is, it's it goes through a lot of uh, goes through a lot of dark places, but does so in a way that's entertaining, that's involving, and that's very, very well made. And it's those qualities that uh, keep me coming back to it. 
Every Christmas. And I think you've almost made an argument for it as a Christmas movie there, in terms of it being a, a film noir that has an ending that is redemptive and happy. And, you know, the cynicism is still there, but it literally ends up with the characters, like, riding off into the sunset the, in yeah. a way they don't in Chinatown. That's I, one of the criticisms that I often hear about it, in that that ending is... It's positive lapsing into Panglossian, that it's just... It's a happiness, it's a hopefulness that maybe that's necessarily earned. That it's like, it almost feels tacked on, the the very end. Which I can understand, but at the same time, once it, it's given his characters such narrative through lines that this just kind of feels like the narrative, the, the end that it has to come to. I mean, to leave it hanging, it could, leave, it could have ended at a given point in the film. But at the same time, we spent enough time with these characters and we've actually grown to like them. Even though, at the start, our three leads, they're not the most likable guys. So at least once we've once we spent all this time with them, we're as well see at least some of them get slightly happier ending. This is I, interesting, because I, I think that the three of us may be identified with, three diff- with different characters. I think it's, it's very interesting that you said uh, um, uh, Panglossian. Hmm. It's like... Um, um, Candide and Cunegonde going 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 off to Arizona to 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 to, to, to tend their garden, and um, the 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 um and I I think some of the maybe criticism that you alluded to in the movie imply might might be seeming to imply that it's some sort of clean kind of straightforward hopefulness. Are like naive optimism, which it really isn't. It isn't. Like no. it, it's 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 very um, it's a very complex um, uh, movie morally. It is. It it's complex in every sense. Like this thing, when you look through even just its production, I don't know how many occasions it uses. There's over ninety speaking parts. There is it goes through a lot of of history in the, in Los Angeles and in his police department in particular. And uh, a lot of the film is inspired by true events. Like oh, the yeah. Christmas Massacre, I think, is based on... Sorry, Bloody Christmas, I think, is based on a real incident. It's a real incident in which uh, a group of cops did beat up some Mexican suspects in an assault. And that did happen in the early 1950s, in which the film is set. Uh, it's all just kind of a hangover from strange relations in Los Angeles at the time between the, between the Mexican immigrant community that was growing there at the time yeah. and... The more the local uh, white residents, uh, stemming from things like the Zoot Suit riots and uh, yeah. things like that, and the Sleepy um, Lagoon case and that sort of stuff. We talked a little bit about this on the uh, podcast covering Touch of Evil, actually. Oh yeah, yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> Charlton Heston playing a Mexican. <laughs> um, but anyway, Hophead uh, <laughs> Panic, Teddy Boys. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm on the verge of lapsing into an Edward G. Robinson impression here. <laughs> um, but it, it so. The film is one that knows its history, it knows what it's talking about, and it is confident enough to incorporate certain events like Bloody Christmas and certain real-life figures into its narrative as na- as jumping-off points, and then stitching them together with its own characters, um, which is... It just shows the brilliance of uh, James Ellroy's uh, original writing and the confidence that the filmmakers brought to it. Because this is worth, worth sort of discussing. This is the third novel in Elroy's L.A. Quartet. That's right. They're, the quartet are The Black Dahlia, The Big Nowhere, L.A. Confidential, and White Jazz. Uh, the Black Dahlia, after after this, was made into its own film by Brian De Palma. It's terrible. Aaron Eckhart and Josh... Josh Hartnett, Scar- Scarlett Johansson, Hilary Swank. 
Yeah, so that doesn't sound like a, a <laughs> very good cast with like a, with a couple of exceptions. This is a fantastic cast, and uh, yeah. and, they, they, and it really it really makes it like like they, there's there's a fantastic feel to this movie. There's fun. There's fantastic. There's fantastic writing as well. Well, but all it, of that needs to be kind of like delivered by the players in it. Well, it comes. It all comes from people who know what they're talking about. I mean, Elroy is one of the most acclaimed uh, American crime authors uh, still working. Um, Curtis Hansen, the director, he, for a long time, wanted to make uh, a film set in Los Angeles uh, in the period around the 1950s when he grew up. Yeah. He's an Angelino. He's a res- he uh, grew up in uh, Reseda. Prior to this, he had had a certain amount of commercial success with uh, mostly thrillers. So he made things like The Hand That Rocks the Cradle yeah. and uh, The River Wild. And The River Wild is where he met the writer for this, I believe, as well. The writer sort of pitched him on this. Brian Helgeland is yeah. his co-writer here. So Helgeland... Fantastic uh, job. They did, and absolutely. I mean, this is... I mean, to me, that's the crowning triumph of this film. <laughs> it's the writing. So uh, Helgeland met Hansen uh, while they were making the while he was making the River Wild. That would have been around 1993. Prior to that, uh, Helgeland had been trying to get an adaptation of *L.A. Confidential* off the ground. He was actually a friend of Elroy's. Uh, he met Elroy, according to Helgeland, he met Elroy in 1988 when uh, the big no- at a, 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 a book launch. Uh, the book launch, the big nowhere, it was a, actually just a, a book signing rather in L.A. In 1988, uh, according to Helgeland, only three people showed up. Uh, yeah, I know, I can't fathom it either. But um, Darren is like, I like those numbers. Those are pretty good. <laughs> Based on my book sales. Um, <laughs> like, I'm almost Sorry. at Elroy author. levels. Author. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm like at 33% of Elroy levels at the moment. I can get there. I feel like I can close this guy. so passe. It's yeah. all online now. Yeah, that's it exactly. Yeah. That's what I say to my agent all the time. <laughs> but, but they met anyway, an acquaintance. Uh, they, they, they formed an acquaintance. And... After that, um, in, 1990, in 1992, LA Confidential, the book, came out. And upon reading it, uh, Helgeland said, I want to adapt this. So he tried to pitch it to Warner Brothers. He'd actually tried to pitch them on things before, but it was one of those situations where Warner's, they looked at his stuff and what he was proposing. He said, we like you, but nah. In fact, it wasn't even that. He was having trouble getting to meetings. He actually got a meeting with Warner's to talk about adapting LA Confidential, they cancelled it. I heard that, yeah. So, Slight, slightly off topic. Um, I've noticed that the last few movies that we've we, we've done with Darren and Phil, they, they call Warner Brothers Warners. Is is that to, to include their sister Dot? Hi-oh! Hi-o. I've never heard somebody say <laughs> Anyone remember so her full much. name? Um, what? Does anyone remember Dot's full name? No, what is Dot's full name? What, do you think I remember? It was oh, Prince, Warner. No, it was Princess <laughs> Banana Fochana Frances Angelina Francesca something or other the third. Okay, I didn't even know that that was a thing. And you call yourself a fan. I know. I, call, I think I know anything about the Warners. No, we, we call them Warners because it's shorter than Jamaica Warner Brothers. Dominica. And people yeah, know... With, the same way that you talk about like Universal Studios as Universal... Okay. This is what happens when we let Andrew into the eggnog. But the, the thing is... That, oh, um, by the way, it's uh, Princess Angelina, Contessa, Luis, Francesca, Banana, Banana, Bobesca the third. You almost... You got it pretty much. It's there. I'm reading it off. No, I, I know. But before that, when you were doing the dress rehearsal, you got it almost perfectly. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Thank you very much. Phil um, is actually wearing a costume for this news. But no, I mean, yes, we call them Warners because the same way that we call like Universal Studios Universal. It's just we call 20th Century Fox, Fox Fox. Yeah, it's shorter. When you say we. 
myself and Phil because that's that's who you were talking about, right? Okay. Uh, Stop <laughs> stirring. Hush. Hush. Jeez. See, come with an off switch. <laughs> Put that beer down. Uh, oh, Christ. Anyway, um, so after that, uh, um, Helgen's took it to New Regency. Yeah. And he met with the CEO, uh, Michael Nathanson, and the owner, Arna Milchon. And um, they're like, okay, we like it. But we've heard that Curtis Hansen has signed up with Warners to to adapt this. So um, go talk to him. And they did. And they found that they were much on the same page in what they wanted from the film, from the script in the film. Yeah. And off they went. And over two years, they wrote it. And then eventually got the green light from Regency with Warner distributing. By the way, we should um, just a tangent there before we sort of jump off into talking or now. Um, Arnon Milchan is a very interesting. Figure. Oh yeah, famous Arnon Milchan. Uh, yes, producer. He's he's, he's yeah. a producer. He's responsible for films like uh, Pretty Woman, for example, is another one of his Heat. films. Heat is another one of his films. Wow. But he 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 um, he was exposed. Oh. He was exposed or came out as an Israeli Israeli spy spy in 2013. Absolutely. So, like, he was was in Mossad. (laughs) He he was, well, Well, I don't know if he was in in or if he was just an asset. But he was basically using, he was smuggling information into and out of the States. Yep. uh, Which is fascinating. Um, Again, this is sort of the small circles that these people move in. But yes, he was involved. He was a huge sort of driving force towards getting this made. Almost oh, definitely. Um, and I believe, yeah, they met on the set of The uh, the River Wild, which is the one starring Kevin Bacon and Meryl, Meryl Streep, Streep. The I, rafting hostage thriller. I'd like the the, the behind the scenes where it's, it's like along the same lines as LA Confidential <laughs> and you're trying to figure out like, um, yeah, how how his connection to Mossad has, uh, what, what that has to do with the rest of the... The, the, the sort of discussion that's taken place oh, sorry. not a I lot it's just that was, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't have a lot to do with it it's just that that's an interesting side note come on you're used to tangents on this thing <laughs> but um but actually it's worth talking about hansen a we're, little we're switching roles a little bit on here well it is hansen is one of those people Let's who talk i would talk about the push westward uh, oh we're sorry, gonna, we're, sorry. later andrew literally wrote down darren stuff uh when that happened but we'll get to that in a second uh yeah hansen i have to say is one of those people who i would have loved to have met uh, he, like I said, he was a, an Angelino, born and raised in uh, in Reseda. And um, he, like a lot of Angelinos, he found himself with kind of connections to the industry. His uncle owned a, uh, owned a clothing store in Beverly Hills. So among his customers, you would have had the likes of Audrey Hepburn, Marilyn Monroe, Natalie Wood. And he worked in the shop sometimes on the weekends, you know, or a bit of money, whatever. And um, as I said before, he was always keen to get to make a film about L.A., the L.A. of his childhood, the 1950s. Yeah. And he found the image of that that he wanted to convey in the books of James Elroy. Yeah. And I think one of his quotes about Los Angeles is, I love Los Angeles, but it's an ambivalent love. Um, and he, he's talked about how he has that relationship. And it's, a, it's interesting, we talked about this on Chinatown, mm. where you have that relationship that many people who live in Los Angeles have to the city, where there's this strange romance about it, but also this deep, abiding cynicism i think it's because like the romance comes from the image that most everybody including angelinos apparently have of los angeles the sunshine the glitz and glamour of hollywood but at the same time the practicality seems to be what weigh it down you know the urban sprawl the never-ending traffic snarls the incessant heat and the cynicism with which that magic factory that is hollywood operates absolutely it's fantastic as well how how kind of an unrecognizable other hollywood this is 
Yeah. Kind of to, 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 like compared to kind of um, uh, contemporary Hollywood. They really like nail, nail it and, 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 and are kind of demonstrating how um, of, um, of setting that scene. Yeah. Of, um, of old Hollywood. Mm. Well, one of the interesting things about this film, and we're really jumping ahead a bit, but is that like Hanson, when he was making the film, and particularly when he was selling Warner Brothers on, because Warner Brothers were under the impression that period films don't perform well at the box Well, office. they have certainly had a bit of proof in that. The year before this, uh, Devil in a Blue Dress came out, and it was a massive flop. And like Warner's, when they said they weren't interested in this in, uh, to Hanson, they, that, among other films they had basic proof of that. They were just seen as box office poison. But what Hanson did to get around that was he made a conscious effort to shoot this like a modern film in terms of lighting, in terms of all the costuming is correct, yeah. but he made a point to play down like the excessive sort of period elements of the of the film. Yeah. Like he, he described it as, like he wanted people to go to LA Confidential and he wanted the girls, the men to think, man, I wish I could dress like that. And he wanted the girls to think, man, I wish my boyfriend would dress like that. In that he wanted to create a Los Angeles that didn't feel alien. That but didn't the girls fe- without boyfriends. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, they're, they're they in a great stay at home. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we don't know if they go to movies. I wish I had a boyfriend. And, frankly, we don't and I could dress them. him like yeah. that, mate. And frankly, we don't want to know if they go to movies. But um, he, what he did to pitch this was he apparently... He, he had a wonderful idea. Yeah. He had a, what is now a famous photo pitch. Yeah. He had an Im- I think it was a collection of 18 images, basically which he brought to Warner's and he brought to Regency. And it was just various images of the kind of mood and look and time that he was trying to capture. So you had things like, you know, say a family sitting outside a, uh, a living room window out by their pool, taken from the inside. You had uh, people gathering for the opening of a freeway. Uh, there's the famous image of Robert Mitchum emerging from a police station after, after, his, his, after his, pop, his pop bust in 1947, I think. Yeah. And um, as well as that, there was also a postcard uh, for, which said, greetings from Los Angeles. And it's the first image in the film. It's uh, The yeah. film opens ever so cheerily with the strange Johnny Mercer singing Accentuate the Positive. And this postcard, which is bright, colourful, says greetings from Los Angeles. Yeah. Well, does that start the movie as well? Yeah. yeah. Ah. He also, um, if I remember correctly, he also included in that photo montage blown up pictures from, I think, LA Confidential, the magazine, which obviously inspired Hush Hush. That's right. Like that. the, it was the tabloid rag of the time yeah. in which Hush Hush was and, and he wanted to basically, he pitched it as wanting to make 1950s Los Angeles accessible to modern audiences in a way that wasn't like a conventional period film. So it's a lot of the lighting, for example, the cinematography, it's not heavily influenced by noir. There's not a lot of like light through blinds. There's not a lot of like black and white contrast there's a lot of vivid colour no it of... is a very well I think if it's going to be a film about Los Angeles uh, it no, has to be it, so. it ha- if it's in colour it has to be so and all credit for that to DOP Dante Spinotti who people might know from other films like Heat um, and see the DP yeah the, some of the shots in this are fantastic yeah. I, I, I love love and it's such an iconic shot is when um the um, like we, we won't jump ahead too much, but um, well, to say I know what you're going to say the confrontation yeah. bet- be, 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 between Pierce and and Crow. That that um, that shot is just terrific. 
Um, and it, and it, it's it, it's so kind of like it's what you think of when you think of this movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, and there's there are so many like that. There's a shot of the DA being dangled out the window. There's like all like the, even the the final bit at the end with the, you know the cars coming over the hill with the lights in the darkness. Or when they're walking through the Victory Motel, which has been riddled by bullets, and just the light flows in. It's the closest it gets to a film noir shot, but it just the yeah. light is streaming in, and Russell Crowe just runs through it, and like it's. It's, it's a gorgeous film to it's look at. It's an astonishingly beautiful film. And like this is what I want to talk about just briefly when we talk about Hansen. Is that like he passed away three years ago now he, in 2015. 2016. 2016. Uh, it's, it's actually quite sad. He Well, after Ellie Confidential, he actually went on to more success. He directed 8 Mile, for example. Directed yeah. Wonder Boys. Um, but uh, his last film, the last film he credited on was uh, Chasing Mavericks, a 2012 surfing mo- movie with Gerard Butler. But he had to be replaced about, uh, well, actually quite late on in the filming process by Michael Apted. It was later revealed that he was uh, suffering through the early stages of ah. frontal lobal dementia. And as I say, he passed away of natural causes in 2016. And one of the things in his obituary were these, the journalists and and many sort of movie critics trying to discuss or contextualize LA Confidential part of this. Because LA Confidential is, like, I don't think, I don't think it's unfair to his work. And I I absolutely love The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. I really like um, The River Wild. I'm a big fan of Wonder Boys, but I think it's safe to say that like L.A. Confidential sort of towers over. It them. does. I mean, and it, now what director wouldn't want at least one film that would define them? I mean, it's you know, I think if anybody were to say, well, if anybody had L.A. Confidential on their CV and that was the one film they had to be defined by, there's a lot worse. This, this is fantastically useful as well for the listeners who are playing Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Oh, very much so. the amount of people in this movie. <laughs> Kevin Bacon was in the River Wild. Yeah. True. <laughs> and you can make a connection there. But I mean, there's there's also like... Some the, fantastic people in this movie. There are some fantastic people in this movie. No, we'll we're going to get to that in a second. Oh, yeah, I know, yeah. I know yeah. Andrew's I like, mean, I, mean, I just want to talk about it. But for 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 one second, maybe about okay. the the uh, um, for photography. In case we get away from it, I know I never want to talk about photography. <laughs> but I, like the, the the kind of foreground and background um, yeah. kind of use use of like windows and reflections. Like yeah. like mm. when um, when they're interrogating the kids, all the interrogation room shots where Exley is inside the inside outside the, the interrogation room, but his face is sort of reflected on the two way mirror, and when, you've got faces in faces. When and, he, when he's outside the um the uh when he's in the kind of like observation room yeah. of the Edley's thing and and they're 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 looking in on him and you can see his face kind of smiling until they say and kid lose the glasses yeah. and, and you, you you can you can see their face through the um through the glass through yeah, the glass it's... but you can also see his face reflected in the yeah. glass it's wonderful There's... how you see how words in one setting can affect uh, people in others it's yeah. it's great i love those shots and it's absolutely stunning and you're right when you pointed out like even the comfort the first meeting between pierce um and bud white where they're at two different levels within the shot as well where like you have white who's technically above pierce but pierce is in complete control of the situation and, and towers over him because of how the shot's composed it's absolutely beautiful and the the, I, the the shot where 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 bud bud white has arrived early at the scene and is 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 framing the, oh, the guy, um, the, the guy who was eating cereal and watching cartoons. Yeah, but you see, you see in the background the cops the window, rushing in. The two, the, yeah, the cops yeah. rushing in. It's a fantastically shot movie, mm. and this is interesting because, like, this sort of sparks debate. And we think we talked about the last time that we had you on, Phil, which would have been when we were discussing um, Amadeus. Oh yeah, and the Milos Forman and the idea, and we talked about it, I think a bit on um, we talked about the apartment as well, and this idea of the director 
who isn't always like when you're talking about directors who aren't like immediately visually distinctive or don't no. have immediate visual styles or don't sort of have this auteur persona. Hansen does not really have an auteur persona. No, I mean um, it doesn't help that his films aren't exactly thematically similar yeah. either. I mean you go for, like he went from uh, like the likes of the Hand in the Rock's Cradle and the River Wild into LA Confidential on into eight uh, into Wonder Boys on into Eight Mile. They're all quite different thematically and narratively from each other. And one of the interesting things is I remember watching Wonder Boys, and I really like Wonder Boys. Me too. It's the one with uh, Michael Douglas and Toby Maguire's in and there. And Robert as well. Downey Jr. And Robert Downey Jr.'s in there. And like one of the things when you're watching Wonder what Boys. Is that movie? Uh, really? This really? Is, this is about, um, so it's, it's about a writer who wrote one great book. He wrote this really perfect book that everybody loves. And he's everybody never Everybody adores up to this book. And he's I never. Why the director wanted to yeah. do that? And he he knows that he he's been stuck. And Harsh. this is like this is five years after the release of Confidential. And this writer in this movie hasn't released another book that's as good as the book that he did that everybody loved. I mean, it definitely and, speaks to the fears of any creative and uh, anybody who does this kind of thing. I remember watching it like I watched it at the time, and that that missed me entirely. And then I went back to it a couple of years later. And I was like, whoa, this is this feels like Hansen, who had the screenplay credit on both is working through the idea because the ending of Wonder Boys because we're in the spoiler zone has this guy who wrote this one profound book that has people walk up to him like it has people walk up to him in bars and say you make me want to be a writer like this is how profound this this thing you wrote had an impact on me and he ends up figuring out that he can just he doesn't have to write a book as good as that one. He can just write another book that's perfectly adequate. Yeah, and that's people good will still read the original. Yeah, and they'll still read the original and love it, and people will like this one. And the thing we, is, uh, people are, that is probably the story with Hansen, even though, like, I would gladly point people to The River Wild, yeah. to Wonder Boys, to Eight Mile. They are all perfectly, perfectly good films. Yeah. Also, shout out to Too Big to Fail, his uh, 2011 TV movie about the financial crisis. He did Too Big to Fail. Yeah, I didn't read that. Oh, Sorry, wow. I missed that. I, I, I really liked it. Yeah, it, uh, I, 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 I must check it out. Actually, I loved his stuff about the financial yeah. crisis. It's, it's Paul it's, Giamatti as Ben Bernanke. Oh, oh my goodness! Yeah. <laughs> and and <laughs> Andrew is just sold. Um, <laughs> Andrew is somehow more sold. And it, 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 um, Hansen, um, I guess, uh, like we'll we'll finally know how Hansen feels when we 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 have this podcast that we're recording now. That this will like, be we'll, the one. This will be the one, yeah. and like we're 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 always just going to be chasing it. Yeah, and, and meanwhile, and then, I'm just going to sit here in the reflected yeah. glory. And next week, when we talk about Beauty and the Beast, we'll talk about how sometimes it's okay to just make a perfectly adequate podcast. <laughs> um, but yes, That's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> we should do that about somebody, someone, a podcast we don't have a guest on because that does seem mean. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, we're. I'm just glad I'm here. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> We can only talk smack about you yeah, and I. That's fair. No, that is fair, and I apologize um, for that. But oh, um, no, because you you've been gagging to talk about this, Andrew. Like, so let's talk about this. The cast. Holy yeah. crap! What a cast! And it's oh, like, it's amazing. And 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 even like like um, I I really get excited when I when I see like even like David Strathairn. Love when, David Strathairn. When he's in a movie, <laughs> yeah. love he, it. He uh, he was in The River Wild and uh, uh, just. Hansen said, "Yeah, you're back on because you're really good." <laughs> and there's your Kevin Bacon connection right there. there I'll, I'll actually come back. I'll, I will say this though: uh, Strathairn was a late addition. Uh, oh. Yeah, I was just reading into this um, that it, because he was so late in the casting process, he was actually unsure about taking the role of Pierce Patchett, the millionaire who's kind of behind some of what goes on in the film. And um, he was he said to Hansen that I actually can't find this guy. I don't know who he is. Uh, Hanson apparently remedied it by pointing him to uh, Zachary Scott, uh, particularly in Mildred Pierce. 
and uh, it's it, whatever it did work because I loved David David Strathairn in this. He's wonderfully slimy, but not in a way that's lechy or he's just. He's like he he knows everything before everyone else. I I love the thought of uh, Strathairn uh, approaching Hanson wearing like his uh, his period wardrobe <laughs> with like that pencil thin mustache. Like, and his hair, I don't know who he and is. He has like a cravat on, and he's like, I don't know who this guy is. <laughs> I, can't, I can't figure it out. And it's like maybe try looking in the mirror. <laughs> yeah. um, no, no, I I I I, I that, that speaks to the kind of modesty, I guess, of, uh, of the actors and yeah, I yeah. love actors like that. Well, I mean, it's fantastic. And I mean, and Pratchett is is an interesting character in large part because the film seems to take the point that he's pretty... He's like, it would be very easy, as you pointed out, to turn him into, like, a creepy, lecherous dude. And the movie's like, well, you know, as far as creepy, lecherous dudes go, he's probably in, like, the top 5%. Yeah, because Viv is very complimentary yeah. of him. Like, Reynolds says, like, I don't know, he kind of scares me. But, uh, like, Viv, Viv I says... I dig him, but... Um, like, uh, he, 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 he keeps us clean... He doesn't get us hooked on heroin. He, he doesn't allow. He, what a nice guy! He doesn't allow drugs, and he doesn't abuse us. Still, yeah. can your can your cop, cop mentality handle those contradictions? You gotta get your girls hooked on heroin. It's the best way to control them. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that was Andrew auditioning for the role of Pierce Pratchett. He didn't like, get it. I'm exactly who this guy is. And also, <laughs> <laughs> I love the, I love the idea that that's what Strathian had difficulty with. It's like I can't understand it. He's not like hooking his girls on heroin. What is the deal? Here. I'd also like that almost kind to kind of to accentuate the Positive. almost otherness, <laughs> yeah. the almost otherness of Patch's character. He lives in the the Lovell Health House, the which is um, which it's often uh, regards one of the first I think steel frame buildings in the U.S. It's designed by uh, Richard Neutra in the late twenties for Philip Lovell, who was a um, uh, who was a physician with some. The, had a few things on the side. Well, he had a few out there ideas <laughs> as regards uh, the practice, but um, it is a, it's a. It it's feels a, like Andrew wants to elaborate on. But this it's a glory. It's very much a modernist I house want to in the, the two. like it, when it was built in the twenties. That thing would have stuck out like a sore thumb. But it really kind of feeds into the vibe of Patches in that he's a character who's a bit ahead of his time and perhaps knows a bit more than the other characters. Yeah, and they only find it out eventually. But uh, you know, it's one of those great locations. Brilliant white walls that just reflect the light. And it has life. levels as well, which is rare yeah. in a Los Angeles film, because again, it's it's presumably up in the hills. Well, what did Zodiac teach us? Very few people have basements in California. <laughs> there are a lot of basements in this, though. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, or crawl spaces. Yeah, yeah. Um, and bad things happen spaces. there. But do you want to talk about the leads a little bit before we talk about like specific scenes and stuff? Because we talked about the actors. Like, It's interesting that Phil sort of came well, in and was like, we meet the three lead characters. The and we and the characters, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we don't really like them immediately. And it's interesting because I feel like maybe myself and Andrew had two very different responses to two of the different leads. <laughs> in that I, I think I know which one of the three leads is your favourite. <laughs> and I'm fairly sure you can guess which one is mine, possibly. Right. Uh, I, I know yours anyway. Well, I don't know. I, f- I feel like um, I f- I f- I f- there, there's something kind of almost um, sort of um, inau- inauthentic and maybe um, sinister 
about um, about Exley that makes makes it difficult for me to think that that's the one that you identify with. Of course, I it's mean, the one he gets he in. He's the one who likes authority and the one who want, who's going to do better than the rest of us because <laughs> he's got power. Okay. Wow. Wow. Thanks, Phil. Um, it's a I compliment. Like that, I like that Andrew was like, "I don't want to insult you by comparing to Exley," and Phil's like, "No, no, I'll step in and do that for you." Um, but yeah, he's you know, I kind of and again, I this is like I don't a, think he would step over anyone. <laughs> <laughs> He's um, not. He's I, not I, as I, Machiavellian. No, but he's good. I. 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 I, I, think I just I, need to lose those glasses. I think um, you're, you're a very like hardworking, earnest, and like um, have um, like a strong idea of what is um, right. But there's a question of of whether that is um, that that, <laughs> that matches actually, up with Exley. Yeah, it's actually what yeah, Exley believes. Yeah. Like because the. It's very interesting because there, there, there's there, there's a moment when uh, like where he's talking to Vincennes about kind of like I think I lost um, like he explains the reason he wanted to be a cop and says like I think I kind of lost sight of it where Vincennes says I think I forgot I can't I can't remember I can't remember yeah, yeah. Uh, I should point out that uh, the idea of Rolla Tomasi the purse snatcher that Exley gives a name to to just give him a personality as a creation for the film it's not in the book it is indeed and the, the I, I adaptation I can imagine Kevin Spacey is like hey there was this movie I was in where everyone wanted to figure out who, who I the, was who there's two <laughs> movies got in the CV with mysterious characters who may not even exist but and one of the inter- that's interesting because again they also streamlined the plot as well apparently the novel I haven't read it is sprawling the 23 novel- ongoing plot lines yeah like you're talking about the three leads in this film there's at least eight comparable leads in the novel uh, it's uh, it's sprawling it's huge much like Los Angeles itself exactly sort of uh, yeah so the idea the basic idea between be, behind uh, Hansen and Helgeland's approach to adapting this preserve the characters not the plot so basically once they worked through the book they said that anything that that doesn't essentially advance the investigation or any of these three characters their development in across the course of the film it's jettisoned and they kept to that rule. And once they made one change, they had to change everything else around it. And it, this is why the whole thing took over the over two, two years. years yeah, yeah like, it got to the point where essentially they were doing this pro bono. Uh, Hansen took, turned down other work. Helgeland put other projects on hold. And just seven work on drafts this. free, I believe, as well. Yeah, because as labyrinthine as this is, it's, it's actually very tight. Yeah, mm. when you watch the entire movie, all of the the kind of uh, moving uh, parts kind of all make sense. There's no there's there, there, there's no kind of uh, dummy. Yeah, yeah but, uh, no, everything uh, fits in. There. And there's, there's nothing there's like red herrings or anything no. like that. Like it's very streamlined, and particularly when you're watching it, having rewatched it, having watched it the first time, when you know where it's going and what reveals it's building to, everything is pointing. With little red arrows towards that. Yeah, I mean, like even um, I mean, you could argue that uh, maybe um, Exley and Vincennes um, going to ask the same questions. Oh, oh I, have, of, I have I have um, some I have some theories about that, but if you want to um, to to because um, they they they've seen Bud White um, yeah. in in interrogate <laughs> true not grabbing. They've <laughs> yeah. so, seen him interrogate. He has some so very quite interesting convincing wa- wa- walnuts uh, grinsing. Yes. Yeah. Ooh, I don't. I don't. Uh, to be fair, I don't think that the acting was in the Speaking grasping. Of Christmas. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> hey. About walnuts, yeah. Chestnuts grabbed by an open fire. But th- this is interesting. Chestnuts. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> but this is interesting because, I, like, I mean, do we want to get into this? It's the one of the things I find interesting. Grab your loved ones. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
show them that you care, Andrew. Yeah. But uh, one of the things that I I really like about the film, and it again, this is where Darren's like this. This is the Darren stuff that's not the push westward manifest destiny stuff. Is We're going to the... talk about that, right? Oh, we are going to talk. Andrew's very excited about that. We're going to hit that two fifty mark. But like, I I really like that the plot of the movie was perfectly linear. So much of the movie is spent with the characters chasing each other and going around in circles. And you're right. You point out that there are several moments. It isn't just the bodyguard that they talk to and several times in quick succession. They both go to the house separately. They both go to the... Um, the Formosa or, Cafe yeah, separately. The, the, they go to the morgue, morgue separately. Yeah. And yeah, in many cases, they're repeating information that the audience has already heard from that character in question. The The... Reveal is not the audience hearing new information. It's the character catching up. You have the moment where the three leads are antagonistic towards each other. And it's only when they come together in the final act and begin working towards the same purpose. Like, of, you know... And even then, it's not—it's not like the relationship between the three is like equilateral or anything. No, like um, Vincennes and White share one line. That's yeah. all. They never meaningfully interact, particularly once the plot actually gets going. Yeah, like I mean, the closest like Exley is kind of the linchpin. Yeah, that's it exactly. And again, I think that's a very Los Angeles style of movie. Like this is the movie the Los Angeles Times named this the best movie about Los Angeles in the past twenty-five years. Yeah. Um, Probably right. Well, I don't know. And the, the argument was that it had to like capture the essence of the city on film. And one of the things that we talk about when we talk about LA movies is how sprawling it is, how disconnected it is, how it's full of lies that tend to intersect and overlap. Think of the LA anthology I, film as a genre. Yeah. You know, shortcuts, crash, that's Magnolia, sort of, Magnolia, all these Magnolia, things. And, and like I. Sorry, yeah. Sorry yeah. you're going to say that. He, yeah. Heat is an odd um, LA movie because it has stuff like the. Um, it has the um, the uh, train lines, yeah, which 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 aren't which aren't very kind of. Um, They're not a staple. Not something we know. No, no, nor is which downtown, probably, which is probably which, why which, which like a lot of the, the business the It's is. probably yeah. why a uh, man likes them because he uses them in both uh, that and collateral. He's, yeah. uh, he keeps coming back to them just because yeah. they offer something different. Getting on the LA Metro, like like I I, I um I think I, w- I was on the LA Metro while I was there, but it it it, it it's like people don't even don't even think of it there they think like in 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 terms of like i guess uh, well at this point they talk about ubers and that yeah. sort of stuff and um but anyway sorry yeah it, but yeah it, it, most it, people have cars and like i said there's there are actually a phenomenal amount of locations in this film but, but they jump between them so quickly that it's dizzying and they well. often revisit it and overlap and intertwine which i really like about the film like we talked about how simple the story is and the story is very very simple when you boil it down it's a gang <laughs> Relatively speaking. To its purest level, which is that a gangster is arrested and the LAPD move in to fill the gap. Or officers of the LAPD led by Captain Smith move in to fill the gap. So but the the film sort of has these marbles moving around. Dudley um Dudley Smith, yeah. Yeah. And uh, but it's 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 not just Dudley either. It's it's, it's it's his henchman or his nominal. It's Stens and it's uh, Meeks was it Meeks? And... No, sorry, sorry. Um, um, aside um, aside from Dudley, it's also sorry. Pierce I'm sorry Pratchett. To, well. Yeah, it's also Pierce Pratchett, and it's also the um, the DA and like the well, the uh, DA is blackmailed into taking. Well, the place, thing yeah. is, neither of them are pure gangsters. They probably needed each other to get into this. So, like Mickey Cohen, who again, he was a real life character who's kind mm. of this yeah. that inspired the whole thing. Uh, that he's Played left a gap Paul by Gilfoyle, who gets an opening title credit, even though he has no audible dialogue. <laughs> yes, uh, sure, why not? Um, but um, so, like the 
policemen move in because they can know they can get away with stuff because they have the law on their side. Patrick decides to get in on this because he's got the money to make a lot of it happen. Yeah. They prob- they need each other, I suspect. Yeah. And it becomes a rather cruel symbiosis. Yeah. But I mean, like, that that logic is quite clear, but it's all, you know, kind of confused and muddled by the movement of the plot, which is very elegant. It's a, it's a wonderfully elegant structure that because the simple, like, through line of that, you know, the fact that the conspiracy is very clearly cops becoming gangsters means that you can have this sleight of hand that allows you to play off the dynamic between the lead characters. And let's let's get back to talking about the lead characters. The, the, the funny thing, though, is 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 about um, is is about Smith 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 having the, the the this kind of like small group of 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 kind of like uh, trusted lieutenants and associates and then like um, cacking, capping them all like killing them all like one by one and then yeah, like, it sounds like, like the end of the Godfather <laughs> and, then, and then like, like at the end of the movie it's like perhaps the, eight yeah the siege <laughs> of the motel and then there's none left yeah, well, he probably like, has more he's, not, he's, he's smart enough that he's not going to waste them all how many people day. does he want to <laughs> yeah. reveal I don't know but there must be at least 12 dead to. men at the Victory but Motel that, that's it end. exactly like, I love the idea of the LAPD basically being well I guess we have to promote Exley because everybody else is dead <laughs> like the the two replacements for uh, for uh, Stenson, Stenson and Meeks, and Meeks. And Meeks. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like um, oh Bruning and Carlisle, yeah, yeah. They're they're like, what do they think will happen to them? <laughs> yeah. They don't care because they're probably getting but well paid. To be for fair, the, the Stens and Meeks were killed because they went out. They went out on their own, isn't that? They, they tried oh, to re- double cross him over the heroin. Yeah. So he he only killed them because well, he Stenson had Stenson killed Meeks. Yeah. Yeah, Stenson killed Meeks, and then Smith arranged the murder of Stenson in the yeah. night hall, which starts the whole th- mystery off. Yeah, and perhaps was uh, holding a shotgun. <laughs> May well have been. Like, May well have been. But two, two, two um, police and like they just walk in. It's like, um, and uh, Stenson looks around. And he's like, oh, um, and it's like, do you know that guy? It's like, oh, it's my boss. Um, <laughs> head down don't pretend you don't see him. oh crap we're gonna have to make that awkward conversation that you do when you meet someone from work in real life and then the gun cocks and t- ah damn <laughs> but yeah it's like the, we, we we were going to kill him out in the street where there wouldn't be as many witnesses but they just spent such a long time eating yeah it would have been rude I had things to do that evening um, I also love the bit where, where, where like at the end and again, this is where Smith is walking out and he's got like, hold your badge up, boy, so they know you're a cop. But he's wearing like his black leather murder gloves while doing it, which I really like. Um, I, 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 in the in the role of Smith, I love James Cromwell. Yes. He was fresh, uh, he, fresh, off babe. fresh off Babe. So it's, it's great because nobody's going to suspect him because he's a kindly farmer from Babe. He's not going to do this stuff. Well, th- this is the thing. I actually think like one of the things... At the same time as First Contact. It probably would have been as well. And well, it, James Cromwell cramps up in a lot of stuff. But uh, this was sort of like, he got an Oscar nomination for Bay. He did. Which uh, is well deserved. Um, yeah, even though he doesn't get to necessarily do a lot besides, you know, react. But he just does it in such a warm and friendly way. Uh, he got it for the dancing scene. Yeah. That's it. So. He reprises this role actually. He he's in a computer game. What's it called? L.A. Noir. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Oh wow. Um, and he's he's still working. He's in like Succession on HBO for for example at the moment. Oh yeah. But still um, he's always there's a couple of things a year you'll see him crop up. He's one of the one of those that guy from that thing. Yeah, and he's always working, which is great. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things that I really like about the character of Smith, particularly as played by Cromwell, ignoring, like, well, first of all, his Irish accent is very good. Apart from the bit where you get to 
I wouldn't trade, trade places, places with Exley for all the whiskey in Ireland. We burst out laughing at that. <laughs> be Goshen, be Gara. There's a point very early when 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 he um, he's talking to the journalist and photographer, and they're say and they're trying to kind of like pitch the story. He's and like, I, I love I, I love that. Yeah, he says that's grand. Yeah. I also love that they have like typical. Um, kind of um the kind of like movie idea of scoops and it's like what about this <laughs> <laughs> which might have been in the reality exactly. in the 50s yeah, yeah. so no uh, i love that but, but i i really i really enjoyed that because it yeah. makes it makes you think that like you're you're in this kind mm. of like 50s movie yeah. i love that we start talking about the leads bad. and we're still not talking about the leads oh well we'll get to the leads in a second but when it comes to <laughs> smith one of the things i really like about la confidential mm. and again this is the kind of thing and we mentioned earlier rollo tomasi and stuff like that is that it it has this wonderful sense of like non-entity-ness to it where like the biggest bad guy in the film is James Cromwell and we love James Cromwell I adore James Cromwell but he is primarily as you pointed out that guy from that thing He well he's the one who's murdering everybody yeah this, uh, this is kind of a problem when it came to the casting of the film because uh, the first person was cast um, and maybe I feel like I'm dragging this conversation forward at least but it'll end up there anyway but it's just funny you mentioned this because when it came to casting Hanson had a problem the budget was only 35 million, which for this kind of project was not huge. The first name he cast was Russell Crowe. Yeah. Then he got Guy Pierce. Two young Australian actors, yeah. not known. So at that stage, he had to find people who perhaps could help sell the film more. He got Kevin Spacey, fresh off his Oscar win. Yeah. Got Kim Basinger, who's a yeah. name. Danny DeVito, another name. And James Cromwell was probably the icing on the cake because, again, he's a farmer from Babe. Yeah. You can not sell him. Name. Right. like a name... <laughs> they are. Like, well the point they, is like they, the, this cast list is huge and starry now but at the time it was Crow and gamble. Pierce especially were a gamble but here's big the thing, gamble here's the thing about like Smith and it, as well that Pierce hasn't really maybe broken out the way he perhaps deserves to well I think that that's a like conscious I, I choice seen, that, yeah, that's more on I him maybe he's more choosy about well that. he's talked about how he has been like offered certain roles and turned, now like he turned down the role of Daredevil in the 2005 version starring Ben Affleck that was example, wise which was a good call he was also like he said that he he wouldn't want he didn't want to do any of the big blockbuster superhero films he was considered for the part of Ra's al Ghul in Batman Begins I could uh, but that, see it but probably no, he was too young it. I think was yeah. the decision in the end but he was considered off the back of Memento working with Nolan but like just quickly before we get off Smith what I really like about Smith and what I really like about James Cromwell is the idea that the villains in LA Confidential are like figments in terms of like you have this idea of Rolo Tomasi who is the purse snatcher who doesn't actually exist. You have Bud White, who became a cop, as, you know, as his, his girlfriend sort of suggests, in order to track down a father who vanished and doesn't exist at all. You have this idea it's then... A tremendously sad story. I know yeah. we're not talking about Bud White, but there's a... a, a Russell Crowe is fantastic oh, yeah. of, at, at conveying... Kind of he like conveys a lot of sadness even him. though he's a character who is really emotionally repressed. He sells a lot of it just yeah. through flickers of eyes. It should yeah. be we'll get back to that. But um, There's like kind of like um, twitches of the eyebrow kind of. Yeah, yeah. it's very It's, it's a phenomenal performance and um, yeah, we'll talk about Russell Crowe in a moment. But the thing about Smith, that the thing about the whole movie that I find interesting is that the big bad is literally like called Captain Smith. It's the most generic. It's generic. It's intentionally generic. And it's cast starring James Cromwell, who I love and who we all love. But, but who a, is that yeah. guy from that thing, primarily. Like, and, and I, I, I feel like it's even even with Smith, who's the most unambiguously bad guy, I feel like there, there, there is a certain amount of ambiguity around him. 
Nice. I think I, I like I I maybe I'm kind of, I well I certainly am adding parts to the movie that weren't there. But I feel like th- this was one of those kind of cases that came out of sort of opportunism. Yeah. Where it was kind of like, well, what we're doing here is we're stopping Mick Cohen, and it's like, and and then kind of almost be- became <laughs> drug dealers by accident. Yeah, yeah. probably. And, and then have to rationalize like all yeah. of the choices they're making, and then they're in it so deep that they they, they can't they, really get out. Yeah, yeah. And it's also one of those things where. You re- it's only after the fact you realise we don't actually learn that much about Smith but no. even when we do it kind of gets blindsided like later on in the film we learn that he's actually married and has four daughters but then they, he, but then he turns out to be the bad guy and we're like well that hardly matters anymore because all our illusions about this guy have been shattered and he's a farmer from Babe yeah. and his, his his kind of moral failings I think are, are, are sort of um, there, they're way above everyone else's in a way but 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 there's a really clever thing about kind of associating them back to more uh, mundane yeah. things mm. like 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 his um his discussion with um like they, Exley they, they, at the start where he's talking the about the whole like, yeah the whole conflict between Exley is that like Exley is a jobs worth yeah. and i think in 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 most jobs there is kind of like an element of like morality where and and it's it, it, like um they, it where and there's also um an element of cynicism yeah and it's like how how do you um like how 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 caref- uh, like how seriously do you take uh, your the work that you're doing. yeah yeah be, 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 because people say like why is all like One little worried difference about this make little, a little no. thing like and, and, we're, and we're case, trying to protect each other we're we're uh, and in the like case a, of Smith brotherhood he, yeah in the case of Smith he lays yeah. out the softest possible options like would you plant evidence to convict a guilty man for example you know, he does later escalate to, well, would you shoot a guilty man in the back to prevent some lawyer from... And actually, like, okay, I get the picture. I, I get smell picture. foreshadowing. No, no, but it, I think I think Andrew's right, though, in that it's sort of like, in some ways, it seems to suggest that, like, that's the rocky road. That, like, Smith maybe wasn't yeah. always, like, oh, the no. kingpin of Los Angeles. But at some stage... But he, he was, was corrupted cop. at yeah, some point. Yeah, he was a cop who planted evidence. Or he was a cop who, you know, shot a man in the back who he thought was guilty. Yeah. Um, but the the he, point that the film makes about the cops is that... They're trying to do the job, but they can't help but be corrupted by it. Yeah. And you know, look at the look at what happens with Bloody Christmas. Like, okay, you get the likes of Stensland uh, being uh, kicked off the force, and people like uh, Vincent and White, okay. and yeah, and some of the guys are pensioned off. But when it happens, it's like it looks like all the cops in the station are going down to beat the crap out of these Mexicans, and Exy is the only one who's trying to stop it. Yeah. So like, they're, they've all played a part in our way. And I mean, I absolutely love that sequence because you have like you have this wonderful illustration of how this sort of like fear mongering starts, where it's like, "Geez, I heard they put him in a hot in hospital, and this other guy's in a coma." And you they're have at home with Bruce and muscle pulls, and then it goes the other guy, <laughs> Helenowski lost an eye, and Brian Brown the last rights. <laughs> You establish as well that White and Vincennes are above that sort of um, like uh, pettiness uh, or sort of like uh, yeah, hysteria uh, mania, feeble-minded sort, of, yeah. sort of. But um, it doesn't stop them getting roped in. I mean, White yeah. only gets there because he's trying to stop his partner, yeah, and then just get out of an insult, which just needs to be his and way. And Vincennes anyway. gets like well, a guy he, thrown against him and punches. He back. does punch. You, back. you know what he says? It's not just an insult. No, it, it's um, yeah, yeah yeah we know we, we don't need to repeat your your your, it, your it, mother it, yeah, yeah and bring, bringing up uh, white's mother like with a lot of people 
But in, yeah, uh, but in particular, white. Given what we learned later on, yeah, yeah. They're, they're built. They're not doing a. They're not going in just to get a punch in, okay. like the rest of the police force yeah. seem to be. And then Vin, Vin, Vincennes even later is like, well, if if if, if you're going to ruin my tie, yeah, if it like if if you yeah exactly <laughs> like, but he's he's told later like if 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 you just testify. Um, against these people, like we, you we, offset the we, damage. You go back yeah. to the show, and we have a witness who says that you didn't um, do you anything until back. you yeah. were you were attacked yourself. Yeah, so right. yeah, you were that you were just defending mm. yourself. Because I mean, there is there is this interesting thing where I I find myself I quite like Exley. Exley is undoubtedly and unashamedly careerist, hyper political. He's a political animal, as Smith describes him. Yeah. But he is driven, I think, by something resembling an underlying morality. Now you're right that well, he says that you know maybe he lost it at some point along the well, way. Well, I think all the characters are white. Certainly is. Yeah. In the one of the big things about white is that well, he has in particular. Yeah. Yeah. Like besides being. Um, Besides his own personal story, he seems to have uh, a thing for protecting uh, women against yeah. uh, domestic violence. Mm. And uh, and actually, like you say, he has his story as well. So there, there is something to them that they are, whatever about whether their violence or their careerism, their backstabbing, they do have a morality at their court, which is, it's that that keeps us interested in them. This film could have lost us. Those characters could have lost us very easily. Yeah. And we just kind of get seduced by Vincenzo's stylishness and suaveness although when we were watching the film and Spacey gave his introduction <laughs> he had the line well oh, the guy I train is the television version America isn't ready for the real me how right you are Kevin but <laughs> yeah, what can we do in hindsight apparently according to Guy Pierce, uh, who was interviewed after the Spacey allegations came forward he was like yeah Spacey did seem kind of handsy on set um, there's a lot of those stories but in, in, in despite that and separating act, act, actor from this person like the, the performance by Spacey he is, is yeah. he is great uh, apparently Hansen said to Spacey when he's offering him the role if you do this I just want you to think of two words Dean Martin yeah because he, he was thinking of William Holden I think was his original plan going in yeah. he wanted to do um, he wanted to do William Insult Holden Boulevard, probably. Yeah. yeah and uh, and basically he was told no 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 you do Dean Martin that's who you're playing yeah and uh, there's a there's always these shots where he's clearly loving being, he should have said uh, he should have said Bobby Darren oh god no uh, the, Beyond the Sea is terrible <laughs> do you know he was actually older than Darren was when he died when he made when he was say. playing yeah when he's playing Bobby Darren as a 20 year old yes terrible um, but um, there's always these when he's in the costumes you can tell he's loving it like in when you hear interviews with the actors and they talk about things like the costumes the, how they inform performance and there's scenes where you see Spacey like looking in a mirror catching his coat hitching his belt up and he's just like looking looking good looking cool and he's it, that's all throughout the film. He's feeling very suave and confident. And that's exactly what the character has to be. Especially if he's going to be played a la Dean Martin. Yeah. And he's great. He's absolutely it, on fire here. He's also, uh, yeah, like, like he's very uh, vain. Yeah. And, 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 and yeah. There's, uh, but all like, the characters and, are in their and, own way. Like Exley's kind of, oh, undermined yeah, yeah, yeah. with the glasses. Where Exley's like, like, you know, take off your glasses. And he kind of awkwardly does. Or a bit later on when he's like doing the interview and he's told, oh, and take off your glasses. The and fantastic like... moment with Smith and Exley <laughs> where the photographer kind of comes at the night owl and the truck goes, photo me, gentlemen. And Exley takes off his glasses. And does this most pretty, pretty look. In a movie, kind of like, and they just kind of like turn. But that's the point. That's kind of like what the cops are at the time, as exemplified by Vincennes, that the cops were... They were almost ideals of Americana at the time. Yeah. That they were these white, strong men folk who 
drank beer, ate a lot of red meat, went out to the beach on weekends and had 2.4 children in the suburbs. Like, they were exemplifying that image. The image that Danny DeVito's Sid Hudgens narration in the beginning pitches. You know, yeah. LA where uh, everybody has a job and a car and land is cheap. Yeah. That was their example. That's what that exemplifies. There was yeah. a picture uh, separate to the, or one of the pictures I think in the photo pitch that um, that Hansen sent to Crow. It was of a man in one of those plaid shirts, and he was uh, uh, starting a fire, a little fire on a beach, like presumably to cook something in a pan. And he sent him, sent it to Crow with a caption, "Bud at the beach" as an inspiration. Yeah. And that's exactly what Bud is in the film, especially when you look at him, say, in relation to his costumes. Yeah. Like Exley and Vincent have a vanity about them, yeah. whether because they're confident or because they're uh, self-aggrandizing. But White is not. White is very much well, that plain guy. He, he has, has the, the buzz the, cut. He has the buzz cut. He has the plain white suit. shirts, the cheap suits. The transparent, like this, the shirt that is so cheap that you can see the wife beater vest underneath yeah, it. For yeah, most of it. But it which is, is ironic given, anyway. But. Well, exactly. But, you know, that, yeah. that's the things you read into it. And I, I love the little details like that. And they're very deliberate. And I have to say, uh, Ruth Meyer is the costume designer of this. She did a fantastic job. Besides having to put so many people and extras in these costumes, they look great on, in under Spinotti's lights. Viv's... Uh, oh, Lynn's. Her, uh, the first costume sorry. we see her in, in Nick's liquor store. And that's that Christmas it costume. Should, it's the, it should be like the hood... The long flowing robe, that should be death. That should be a sign that steer clear of her. But instead, as the camera slowly goes around to her from uh, from White's point of view, we're like him. We're just seduced. We want to see who this woman is. And once he says to her, Merry Christmas, she suddenly turns. You hear the wh- the whoosh of the cloth. And whoa, you're okay. You are commanding every portion of this frame right now. I can't take my eyes off you. Basing your ear. Great, yeah. and it helps that she looks and is shot beautifully. With yeah, the costumes. but she like has to be incredible, kind of like otherworldly sort of yeah, yeah. beauty and angelic sort of quality. And, but and, that's kind of what she has to be without becoming any kind of a damsel. Yeah. Uh, the idea is that she's supposed to be in there to look like Veronica Lake. Personally, I don't think she does. I think she, at times she looks. I think she looks hit. better. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, smooth. <laughs> I, I bet you're the first man to say that in five years. To we, we did get over an hour into the podcast before we talked about how much she looked like Lana Turner. So I feel like that's a good thing. Um, Not Lana Turner. Ron, that was Lana like, Turner. Oh, but, um, <laughs> there, are time, there are times when just in the face, I think she looks more like Rita Hayward, but. That's another side story because there's someone else who looks like Rita Or at least it's meant to. Yeah. This is um, going back to Pulp Fiction. <laughs> it's like, that's not Marilyn Monroe. That, it, that is Mamie Van Doren. I don't know where Jane Mansfield is. It must be of a night off or something. But anyway. Um, it's worth noting, by the way, that like when Hansen was casting this, in particular, you mentioned that he cast Guy Pierce and Russell Crowe, who were both unknown in the States at the time. Crow had just starred in Romper Stomper where he played that's where That's what Hanson liked him in yeah. and wants him to audition. And he wanted him to portray this sense of masculinity. And it's interesting that like Crow has talked about how when he did it, he didn't feel like that much of a man. When he read the script, he was like, I am not as manly as Bud White is. So what he did was he it's... rented an apartment that was too small for him, where yeah. the ceilings were low, so he felt like a giant. He had to stoop There's... under the doors. There was also another thing where uh, he, when he put on his costumes, he felt it wasn't tight enough. He felt like he had to be bursting out of them. He said to Ruth Myers, the costume designer, I need this to be tighter. 
that's just not going to look right. So <laughs> he got what he, he didn't get what he wanted in that, but you can see where he's coming from. Like you say, he's trying to be this masculine. Bigger and sort of big, getting it. Yeah. And is, is like, this is interesting because presumably the character that, <laughs> that you thought I was <laughs> was Bud. Was, was, was Bud. Is that, because you imagine me looking at Bud and saying, um, you have your use, Bud. Particularly your adherence to violence. I, I love Dudley Smith. As a necessary kind of adjunct recruit- to the job. <laughs> subtle recruitment pitch for Bud as well, where he's in the office. You and me should talk about some extracurricular activities. By the way, close the door after we've had this conversation. Do you think Boyo. as well, like, Boyo, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm more of a, of, of a, um, <laughs> well, no, because you I'm talk- more of a bud because, like, I have, a, 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 like, I, I look up to Exley as, like, I could never be as smart as him. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, was th- I, was, I was thinking more along the lines of you have a very strong sense of what's right. You're very, very, in- you, like, you don't compromise. You're very focused. But you also have that sense of, like, beat the- like, well, that's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> You've talked on the podcast before about how we watched Dangal, which is an Indian movie about women wrestling. Your first suggestion when the credits rolled was right, right, who wants to wrestle? And I was like, I can see Bud's masculinity. Really speaks to my strong moral yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I can see Bud's masculinity speaking to you in a way. Or am I was I was I unfair? No, you're 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 right. And don't but worry, you're not Vincennes. I don't mind Vincennes. being Vincennes. Vincennes is cool. But I saw I saw parts of actually in in, in as well i wish i was as um accomplished as be and and, and um like if uh, like actually talks I, good I, game we'll i have yeah. some of uh, his kind of careerism but it's never really kind of like manifest yeah i think we all wish we had that yeah, yeah, quite, yeah. the, the inroads that man makes yeah well um, again what was it your, your father only made detective by 33 yeah yes but like, i know when he was was as a detective yeah um, um but coming since we've got the lead we mentioned crow earlier and he is great this is one of his best turns i mean mm. to me this is up this is like up there like insider level good um i kept thinking it really kept, came to me this time we were watching it there's the scene where he discovers inez the rape victim in sylvester fitch's yeah. house yes. and before we see her we just see him standing at the door frame and he looks in and like you said there's that little flicker of an eye yeah. it's like this scene this woman tied to the bed and bloodied this is really affecting him. But of course, being that macho guy that he is, that's as much as he can show it. But Ro- Crow makes sure to bring that out as much as possible. And then once we cut, then we see what's got to him. Like, it makes you appreciate it afterwards. Yeah. It's and, immensely and, restrained. And it's, 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 it, it's the character is kind of like applying that restraint. Yeah. So uh, like you, you, you have... You have it as well, where 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 he's acting next to Kim Basinger, and she, and and there's that famous line where 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 she's like, "You're what is it? You're 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 the first man like not to." You're the first um, man in five years who didn't tell me I didn't look like Veronica Lake inside. I looked like Veronica Lake inside of a minute. Yeah, and he goes, and he, he, "You the, look better." Like that's but but you damn. look look look. look I'd fall for him. I don't look a thing like that. Look at his face. He's kind of like um, you see this kind of like reaction to him where where. Where he's like, I'm really glad I I, I, I told her this. <laughs> but then you, you, you see, like, he has this kind of, like, twitch of his eyebrow, which is kind of like, oh, put Does it together. Not yeah, yeah. Put it together. But it happens uh, again yeah. at the end where he's like... that restraint. Yeah, it happens again at the end of the conversation where it's like, I'd like to see you again. And she's like, as a as a client or on a date... Forget and it. And, Forget yeah, I and his immediate response yeah, like, is like, yeah. no, just got, shut that down. Uh, moment of weakness, shouldn't have said it. 
Uh, that's not what manly men do when they're doing yeah. manly men stuff. He's like kind of almost like shaking his head like. Yeah. You know, Does not compute. Yeah. Um, yeah, Crow, Crow is fantastic. Pierce is fantastic. Pierce Space is great. Um, Do you know something about uh, Pierce in terms of his look? Uh, his uh, his teeth. He's wearing capped teeth. Okay. Yeah, ah. he, he actually had a chip in his tooth when he was auditioning. And rather than file them down, he just wore the cap. It, it just added something else to his facial features. Okay. Even though he's a very gaunt, angular face anyway, yeah. Guy Pierce. But that's just a little tidbit. Ah, interesting. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about Basinger. Because this is this got her an Oscar can we Can we just point out it's Basinger. Basinger, apologies. Haven't you seen that episode well, of The Simpsons? Basinger. Wow, Kim Basinger, it's Basinger. I loved you in LA Confidential, Miss Basinger. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the actor who got a Best Supporting Actress nomination Win. for her work here. Win, yes. She Win. is one of two Oscar wins that LA Confidential has. The other was for the script. For Deservedly ha- so. It was, nominated for, it was nominated for uh, seven other Oscars. It lost In- all of them to Titanic. Yeah, including Best Picture. Yeah. This is one of the ones where, like, if, the argument is that if Titanic had hit its original release date, which had been the previous year, LA Confidential would have safely won the following year. Yeah. But just happened to have the bad fortune of getting... Sort it, of, wa- uh, it wasn't the iceberg that night. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. No. But... Um, um, even but though yeah. I, I find Titanic, but that's Kim another. Is, Kim is great. Kim um, Basinger is wonderful in this, in that it's not a showy performance. I suppose the you think it could be. She's kind of playing the nominal tart with the heart. In any other film, a lesser film, that's what the role would be. But even though she's, excuse me, she's the character with the kind of the most pretense to put forward because. She's supposed to be portraying somebody else, Veronica Lake, yeah. for her paying customers. She's selling a romantic fantasy. Yeah, yeah. like one of the scenes we see her in, in her the first scene in her house, uh, the this gun for hire, the one of the films that Veronica Lake made with Alan Ladd, yes. is playing in the background with the councilman. With the councilman, yeah, it's there. That's all there for his benefit. Yeah, and like it's not a performance that depends on you knowing who Veronica Lake is, other than she was a pretty blonde actress. Yeah, um, it because. Basinger makes sure to make it much more than that. It's she's the only character in the film who genuinely knows who she is, what her situation is, and she's either trying to make the most of it or is planned enough forward enough in her head that she's able to get through this right now. Yeah. She, as we learn, she grew up in southern Arizona in and Bisbee has a long term plan as well to, to get go back, back there. there. Also, ironically enough, Bisbee is a site of another. It's another town, much like LA, with its own racial history, a history of racial problems. Um, but um, this is like she knows what she wants. She's in this situation now, not necessarily the most pleasant, but it could be worse. You yeah. know, she's not allowed to do drugs and she's not abused. Okay, again, making the best of a bad situation. But and she knows that she's getting out of it. Unlike exactly. Exley, who's lost himself. Oh, Exley's lost himself. Vincent has lost himself. But White, White doesn't never know. found himself. Yeah. No. I don't think there's that much kind of moral or emotional conflict for her either. There isn't. But I, I, she... I think she's 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 actually figured these things out. To it's not that she's kind of like she doesn't have that kind of um, she doesn't have the same sadness that like that's why has. it's a wonderful yeah. role for her yeah. because she gets she's the shining light in this film like because. She knows exactly what's going on. She's she may not necessarily be ahead of everybody in terms of where the plot is, but she doesn't have to be. All she knows is that she knows herself in her own heart, in her own way, in a way that the other characters definitely don't. There's also a decided irony in the fact that although she's been like she hasn't been surgically changed, but she's dyed her hair exactly. in order to look like this actor. 
she's the person in this film who isn't trying to be somebody else, who isn't pretending to be somebody else, who isn't presenting themselves as somebody else. She's no, she's just, she does what she has to for her customers, and that's a yeah. bare minimum, I but guess. She doesn't she have any shame about it. She says, like, um, uh, I, uh, I, I've heard, heard, heard people for money. She says that, like, a, a, it's a, matter of fact. a number yeah. of times. Yeah. Like, like um, in, in, in case anybody tries to say it about her. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and it's not and it's not so much it's not coming from any kind of pride of place or anything. It's just that she's doing what she has and to do. And she's aware of that. Yeah. And she's not presenting herself or putting herself forward as something she's not like, you know, our like Pierce Pratchett is, for example, like, like Captain everything, Smith is. everything like around her is. is. Yeah. Like everything Vince around Vincennes is. is, you know. Like, she's very much what you see is what you get. And she's when she's presenting as this actor, or as, as Veronica Lake, she's very clearly presenting as Veronica Lake. She's not lying to herself yeah. in the way that Exley or Vincennes is. It's why it's great to see Bud and Lynn together because they are the two, because each other, they're the people they can let themselves be themselves. Like for Lynn's line of work, the bedroom that she, the bed she uses is downstairs in the yeah. house. Bud is the only one who gets to go to her real bedroom upstairs. Um, it, it might be a slightly on the nose point, but it's important. Well, I mean, you literally have Bud saying, you know, they all get Veronica Lake. I, I get, get Lynn Margaret Bracken. Yeah. Yeah. His, like, like when he's in, uh, brought into like the, the, the single room yeah. with the rather simple bed, he's like, oh, uh, why me? I don't, <laughs> just, I don't know. But it's it's the fact that he sees because in her something more than Veronica Lake. <laughs> you, you don't get the you nice don't bed. Get really <laughs> nice <laughs> bed. <laughs> but it, it's, it's that thing that he doesn't see Veronica Lake and in and in return she doesn't see the gruntish boorish cop she sees Bud and while we're on the subject of Veronica Lake and again this is more Darren stuff in inverted commas and we're not going to Darren talk- stuff like you as actually <laughs> but it's harsh no, but possibly I, 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 that, that's why I was saying like uh, Darren isn't Exley because like while 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 Exley is very kind of um, dutiful in some ways he's also like a real creep he's not a pleasant person the, the, his whole um, reaction to the like repeatedly to the death of, this is amazing. Um, yeah, Sense. Of, of, of Stenson, where like in the hospital, um, and, Bud, Bud yeah. comes in and Bud looking for his par- he sees his partner dead on the slab, and Exodus goes, "Hell of a way to avoid a prison." <laughs> yes. You bastard! I love the. I know you don't like the white, Bud but doesn't come on. kick the crap out of him then. Yeah. So, uh, and and then later on when he, he says like uh, Stenson Stenson got what he deserved and so will you. Uh, yeah. uh, Cromwell tells the story that every take in that scene it felt like Crow was really going for it. Everybody really had to hold him back, <laughs> <laughs> which I'd well believe. But because uh, I mean there there was actually when when that moment happened. By the way, just to give listeners a sort of an inside peek into watching this movie with Andrew and Phil, the moment where like Bud is like leaning over his dead partner and Exy's wandering down the corridor and saying hell of a way to avoid a prison sentence I think Andrew's response was to say prick out loud (laughs) in the same way that Tom Cruise does in Mission Impossible Fallout Um, it was just like that was the moment that Andrew was like screw this guy uh, and it's um, it's fantastic as well Bud's kind of superhuman strength you see it a few times where he's gripping a chair and, <laughs> and breaks like, it breaks through the, and then there's another moment where he's also gripping a chair but Danny DeVito's in this uh, one but and it's nailed to the ground, the ground. Yeah, yeah where, where like you're walking to like a Burger King and want to put two tables together yeah. Bud is your man like, to do rip it. them out of the tile yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Those there's the, the yeah. moment where like it does take the entire 
entire police force to hold him back and it looks like they're barely doing it there's like six of them and it's like you better move Exley he's gonna get here eventually yeah and it's one thing that like I said uh, Crow and Pierce because they're relatively untested in American films the investors were so nervous that it actually bought Hanson some more rehearsal time for them he got spent around six weeks working with them on the characters and I think that shows because much like uh, Crow, I think this is one of um, Pierce's best performances yeah. because he he does get the smarminess and the yeah he's a prick. Let's face it, like yeah. you yeah. said. But uh, even the, even the, like the conclusion of yeah. the movie, <laughs> but it's <laughs> like he never the, stops thinking yeah. about it. Maybe they're using himself. me. I'm going to use them for a little while. But maybe you can they did a good thing here. Yeah. I don't know. To be fair, though, <laughs> using them. Some of them shot him and nearly killed him. So you're willing to let it pass. Um, you know, I, I like them both. And also, I mean, you can almost draw a true line between Exley to, say, Leonard in Memento. Yeah. Because they're, they're very similar in that there's their single-mindedness towards their own goals, whatever yes. it means for anyone and, else. And lets the world outside themselves and stuff. So, so. Oh, yeah, Hansen, Exley is a character who's all in his own head. Hansen casts Crow and um, also cast Pierce because he wanted for audiences... To not see anything but the characters, because he, both of them were unknown in America at yeah, the time. Yeah, he wanted the he, he the way he put it is he wanted the audience to discover them the way he discovered them in the book. Yeah, that he didn't want them coming with any preconceived notions yeah. like you would have with say Kevin Spacey or Danny DeVito. Yeah, he and, wanted like blank slates onto which they could build these characters. And, and Spacey, finally, we've yeah. got to talking about the real leads, Danny DeVito. <laughs> yeah, I, Danny DeVito is one of those actors who we just don't appreciate in yeah. a lot of films. And this is one of his richest roles because, not least because he just jumps into it with such energy. Um, he's His role of Hudgens, the, the uh, tabloid uh, the journalist. kind of greasy journalist. Yeah. Well, not just a journalist, but he's also a bit of an entrepreneur in his way. I mean, he's the one driving hush hush to, yeah. to 36,000 to circulation and climbing. And he's in, intimately well, we involved in the whole scheme this podcast, well. yeah. They talk about him and Patches yeah. and, uh, and Smith. Smith. Yeah, kind of all, <laughs> all in and on it together. Yeah, like, yeah. Like well, the, I mean, it, it makes sense. Like he gets to he he's the method by which they blackmail the people they need to be black through the photography and stuff like that as well through the image yeah. and the pictures. Like, and, and that's how like they get people out of the way. He gets his magazine more popular. It works for both. Uh, it, it works to both advantage. And I do. I did wonder slightly about that with the um, with the DA because he because he set, Sid sets up the thing. Where the idea is where, that, the, where, where uh, Vincennes will bust the DA with Simon Baker. But it seems like he's also taking pictures that Smith will use to blackmail the DA at the same time. Well, is this it, it, Sid playing both sides? Or no, is this what this is, it's like, it's simple. Um, he can take pictures of them uh, to use to blackmail any decisions yeah. by, that could be made by Lowe. And threaten that since they have a cop arresting him, and not just a cop, they've got... Hollywood Jack, the big V, arresting them, it would be a scandal beyond all proportion. Ah. And Lowe cannot afford to have that. So, okay. and then once they find out that uh, that the kid, Reynolds, played by Simon Baker, yeah. has uh, overheard the whole scheme anyway, well, he's gone. I, Which I is interesting because it brings up this, this recurring motif with both Vincennes and Bud White, where they're both complicit in this scheme 
without even realising it. Bud most memorably when he's taken the motel and used to pummel on these out-of-town gangsters. He thinks he's doing it like the doing spot in real life to keep people out of Los Angeles. But he's actually doing it in order to help Smith solidify his hold. Vincennes thinks he's doing it to like further his own ascent and his own stardom. As you pointed out, is adding this layer. He's keeping them out of Los Angeles. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Okay. But but without any ulterior motive of installing a new heroin kingpin played by the farmer from Babe. Yeah, I mean, both Smith and uh, White can 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 both sleep uh, soundly at night. Sleep soundly because they've kept drug dealers out of Los Angeles. Angeles. Of Los Angeles. I mean, Smith maybe doesn't sleep as soundly because like um, Vincent, you mean? Yeah, and I feel like his wife and four four daughters were also like. I, we're 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 not sure you're doing the right, right. thing here. <laughs> like, look, I promise. There of course, be... I'm doing the right thing. I'm a cop. Yeah. Well, it, I'm a police it, captain. <laughs> I mean, if you don't like our beach house, then just say so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you seem to spend enough time there. Um, just yeah. enough time for me to take out this guy. Yeah. But no, I, like I think that, I think that's interesting that both Vincennes, who, as you point out, would be pro- party to this arrest of the young actor, yeah. um, and therefore the blackmailing of the DA. And also, like, White, who is complicit in the sense of, like, beating up the competition to the point where, like, Smith is very clearly grooming him. Like, oh, yeah. that's what that's what the, the meeting in the restaurant is. Well, like, is. if something like, were to happen to Bruning or Carlisle, he's next yeah, up. He'll be you were wondering, like, how the internal promotion works in Smith's operation. It's primarily with... I particularly like your adherence to violence as a means of enforcement. Yeah. Um, that's sort of so how you I do. have some big plans for you. Because eventually I'll have to kill people <laughs> that I've told too much to. And then... And you seem like an idiot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. You see, the thing is that I need to tell you certain things so that you can be complicit in my crimes. But after a certain amount of time, you're going to want to, you're going to potentially be a liability. But it's going to take a while for you to realize yeah. how, how, how much leverage you have on And me. that's the this, sweet spot. This movie is an important PSA <laughs> for like all sorts of things like uh, uh, honey, honey traps. And uh, how corruption works. And yeah, stuff like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Mm. If, 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 if you're a bar and some, if you're at a bar and somebody attractive shows an interest in you, they are probably careful. Yeah. Yeah, particularly if you see Danny DeVito hanging around. So, in, in long story short, don't go to the frolic room. Yeah, but I mean, this is this. Well, you know that the the fun fact. Well, okay, fun fact in inverted commas. You know that they're actually reportedly now. I can't find any evidence of this outside of like apocrypha and stories told in memoirs. But allegedly, there were several brothels in Los Angeles that actually used uh, young women who had been surgically altered to look like those famous. I actors. wouldn't doubt that this kind of thing is based on Mickey Rooney discussed it in his uh, autobiography. He called it the TNM Club, for example. Mm-hmm. It popped up there. He had no he in his autobiography. It's like I've got no idea what it stands for. But he would talk about how in there they'd have and girls. T N M. No T and T and M. Or with a little N and an apostrophe. <laughs> no, no, it's 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 the um, the ampersand. Well, so T must stand for tits. What does the... <laughs> um, Use your imagination, t- Darren. Moving on. Mons pubises. Thank you for that. Well, <laughs> gee, way to hit the nail on the head. Um, but yeah, apparently. The, but the idea is the favorite thing. <laughs> um, I think Phil pointed out the really creepy thing that one of the prostitutes. Yeah, I just it was in the background. One of the scenes, one of the parties that Pat is having. So if there's all these actresses, there are all these uh, prostitutes who look like actresses. There's one guy uh, who has a uh, prostitute on his knee, and she is dressed as Shirley Temple, and that is freaky as hell. And there's one with like abnormally large eyes who looks like Betty Boop. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, <laughs> they don't spend much time, time on that. Um, but here's the thing: is that this is what I find interesting about LA Confidential. And this is where Darren is probably reading too much into stuff, particularly in the context of LA Confidential being a late '90s movie, because it's very much it's in that spirit of late '90s paranoia. That stuff around race in it as well. There is like the, 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 there's the three um, African American yeah, suspects who are framed, and then there's the, 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 the Mexicans at girl. the beginning, and also the Mexican girl who yes. understands who understands. Yeah. Like, like you know. she's she's in the midst of all this, she's actually found an opportunity to make her voice heard. Yeah. By you know, like she said, who would have cared that a Mexican girl from Boy Highs would have been attacked and raped if it wasn't for the white people who killed got murdered in diner? Yeah. And again, that's that that wonderful thing where you have this question of like complicity within the system. So you have this idea of like, do you do you get along with the system? Do you compromise? Like, do you accept the way things are and just play the game as best you can, even if it's amoral? So she lies and says that these three young African-American men killed a bunch of white people that they didn't. Does it matter if she gets the justice that she can't get anywhere well, else? Well, it's well, you know, if you weigh that up, it's kind of tricky to say. On the one hand, the three Negroes, yes, they kidnapped her. Yes, they raped her. But at the same time... Her saying, her giving her testimony led to them being killed uh, on the assumption that they were murderers as well. So it's oh moral grey area. Why she did least. the right thing though? Yeah, because, because because like it's enough that they raped her. Yeah, they that they, that they deserve to die. Well, and it's, a, it's, it's a well, very she certainly of, would feel so. Yeah, but this is the interesting thing where you have like this question within the film, and it's why like the ending doesn't bother me so much, which is the the whole point where you have. We've had this discussion about how Smith has this whole would you plant evidence on a suspect you knew to be guilty? Would you shoot a man in the back? Because um, we've seen him be guilty. We know the extent we of his see crime. Bud, like we, we see Bud at one point shoot an unarmed man and plant a gun on him. And like the film very clearly, like the film has very little compunction about that. It doesn't condemn no, Bud. It doesn't right. mean... What? Yeah, he is a rapist. Yeah. He is, like, to be absolutely and, uh, clear. Or, the, is, or at the very least, he is holding somebody. Yeah. He's kidnapped her. Yeah, yeah, but he is he is a suspect that Bud knows to be guilty in the parlance of Captain Smith, Captain Dudley Smith. Hmm. And the movie doesn't portray that as a moment of moral compromise. It doesn't seem to have any qualms about it whatsoever, which well, is interesting in the context It's of, because we have seen it in the context of what Smith said and in what's happened since with the three young men that they yeah. arrested. I love the Dudley's... Dolly Smith's choice <laughs> of like who who is like well it was a very difficult decision I, I I had to choose the two people who happened to be on night duty with me at the time who who were both terrible cops who always got like the one thing they had in common was they were terrible cops they who got always D-ratings got ratings on their efficiency and all, which which means they didn't do quite badly enough to but the I thing feel is like the honor of the uh, of the police force is that you don't give anyone an F yeah, it's unless an you're Exley yeah. unless Exley is the person kind of giving them yeah. but that's probably why he had them as his guys in the first place because they're so useless as cops that nobody would think them smart enough or capable of of being you know crime uh, crime associates <laughs> or criminal masterminds yeah I like the idea Dudley you seem very smart why do you hang around with these two idiots it took or... them the longest time to double cross them <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like because he has to start with the stupidest cops yeah. uh, and work his way into the more ambitious ones <laughs> it's like wait we could you mean we could take this heroin for ourselves oh wow um, but yeah, that, that, and it's kind of interesting just to get back to stuff like that I find interesting <laughs> I don't about. Don't understand the process by which Dudley turns this heroin into money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> money can be exchanged for goods and services. I love the idea of Sten sitting at the diner one day and going, "Wait, Meeks, wait, hold on, I got this. I figured it out. 
I asked. What if? What <laughs> if? Hear me out. Yeah. <laughs> what if Dudley sells the heroin and Meeks is like, ah. But yeah. Um... <laughs> I needed the money, Dudley. You have your wife and your four kids. All I have is these prostitutes. Yeah. I mean, which and a boatload of heroin. What do you expect me to do? Yeah. yeah. Um, but to get back to the, the prostitutes, and one of the interesting things about... <laughs> How many times have I said that line? I'm like, but to get back <laughs> to the prostitutes. prostitutes. One of the interesting things that I really like about the film is the way that it does this sort of blurring of like reality and fiction and this sort of the way that the two cross this is, like, the intersection, yeah. the explosion of the frame. So you have this idea of like, is Vincennes, uh, you know, is he a real cop or is he a movie cop in the real world? Is Who he, cares? Like, Jack's back. Yeah, that's it exactly. <laughs> that, that laugh he gives, it's just pure Jack Nicholson. Yeah. I love that. You have the sort of the whole thing with the prostitutes who are designed to look like these stars so they can sell a male fantasy. To this is one of the definitive true lines of Hanson's CV. And he's, particularly in this one, he's fascinated by that blurring between uh, illusion and reality. And as he said himself, he wants to t- deal with that in LA, the home of manufactured reality. Yeah. I, I, you know the way you spoke about kind of like how um, like structurally they repeat a lot of things yeah. twice. Like they they, they, they... they visit the coroner, they go to visit the mother. They also have... the the You, you remember um, Sarah? She, 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 she has the like bandage on her nose. Yes. Well, Susan and, and, yes. And then at, 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 at the end... They, they they have Lynn, who's learned a lot from Patches. It's like um um and uh, Exley is like, oh um, uh, what's wrong with him in the back? It's like, no, it's not what you think. We just m- make up uh, our boys to look just like Hollywood uh, stars. Um, he looks just like Russell Crowe. Yeah. This is our Russell Crowe, um, where he has all these bandages on his face. face. <laughs> to get that real life Russell Crowe experience. I quite, I quite like, by the way, the way that... Actually, the... just needed to cap his teeth. <laughs> I love the way that the film um, uses the bandage on the first girl, on her face, on her nose, with her eyes and stuff mm. like that, to draw a connection between what they're doing with these women. And domestic abuse to to make it clear that like this manufacturing oh, yeah, like, of women. That's the reason that, uh, that Bud, Bud goes to Susan first because he sees that he assumes because with her blackened eyes and all, she's been beaten up. Yeah, and I, I like that it makes that sort of explicit connection between the idea of like the, the I, systemic I, yeah. exploitation of women and the guy in his home at Christmas beating up his wife, beating up his wife and throwing. Her and is he? And even then, it, the parallels don't end there. Like when he asks her. Are you okay? And Patch leans in. She's fine. Thank you. You'd assume a husband would like, yeah, don't eat that. She's fine. It's like you say, the systemic and the domestic are very similar. It's fascinating as well. And you also have then this question of like, you have this idea that the characters are chasing themselves in both a literal and a metaphorical sense in the sense of like, Exley and Vincennes spend a lot of the movie trailing Bud, who in theory is investigating the same thing that they are. But you also have the case where, for example, uh, Bud becomes a woman beater at the climax where he lashes out at her. And it's a beautifully shot sequence. It's an absolutely stunning shot yeah. where she's on the veranda, sort of on the porch yeah. with the sort with of the rain from falling the rain. And, and the, the blue glow. The rain is falling on him and he's wet and he's dripping and you have the light glistening in the rain. It's absolutely stunning. But in that moment, he lashes out at her and he strikes her and he beats her and he becomes... He becomes sort of, what he dreads. He becomes what he dreads and what he's been chasing sort of his entire life. 
And you have this sort of interesting back and forth where it's, and again, it's the cliche of the cop movie. The, the most cliche thing you can do in a cop movie is have, well, they're actually investigating themselves. But you do have that because Exley is investigating the case that made him. It's repeatedly stressed throughout the film that yeah. does he really want to open this can of worms because it will. Do you want to bring it all down? Yeah, it will. With a wrecking ball, he says. It will undo everything that's built him up as well. And you have like Vincennes who's like, he's teaching actors how to act like cops even though he himself has forgotten yeah. how to act it's like It's like he cop. describes to uh, Smith later on, he said, uh, he's working... Because America's not case. ready for the real him. Yeah, but he says he's working on a, on a, a murder case when he's actually in narcotics. He yeah. said, I messed something up, I'm trying to make amends. Yeah. So it, and, and he messed up so much because it's terrible what happens to Reynolds. Oh yeah, like he's just... It's, it's just like so he, he frames him, first of all, for a pot bust with, another, yeah. with an actress. Then aims to frame him with the DA... But when he gets in too deep, he gets his throat slit. Yeah. It's, it's horrible. It's naivety of, of, and, of he, and then at the end of the character and, yeah. and, and well, the way even... the way that 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 uh, Vin, 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 Vincennes and Hutchins kind of like are so knowingly manipulating. Yeah. Well, they just don't. Well, yeah. there's Vincennes a moment where he says, "Like, look, this guy's a consultant on the show. He can get you a role on it, can't you?" And it's it's a mirror of a scene then, earlier then, on where like where Exley. Um, and Vincent's they're trying the boxer, to get, yeah. and they're like, "Well, this guy can shave ten years off your brother's prison sentence." And he's like, "Can you do that?" And there's a hesitation. He's friends with the DA. Yeah, and there's a hesitancy. He says, "Sure," and it's the yeah, exact same sure. beat with Vincent. And because it's, it's it's and it's so it's such a kind of um, uh, cynical. Fan, well, no, it's it's a fantastic movie to me because of the kind of like complexity of those beats because it's so dark, it's so like funny. Yeah. Uh, those things where it's like oh yeah, f- f- you're f- friends with the DA right and they, they kind of like have this look like to each other yeah like, and he goes yeah, yeah, yeah. friends <laughs> with the DA but and, and this is a very funny movie yeah. like I, I I think we like but it, it, blackly so I mean the, yeah. at the end of that conversation the uh, the young boxer he turns to uh, so you're goes, gonna so you're gonna so I'll hear from you right about, about my brother keep it up Lenny the fist but, Keep it up. But I mean, and the same, that's the same thing that's married later on in the conversation that we talked about there with Sid and with Vincent, where Sid is like, look, he's a consultant. He can get you a role on the show, right? Yeah, and I think I get you a And there's the moment right? where, where like Vincent realizes like what he's being party to and he's not comfortable with it. Like, and he says, sure, but you can tell that he's feeling the same way Exley does. It's like, I, I'm, I've lost my place. But there you go. That's I, like a classic I mean, example of what uh, Hanson and Helgeland were doing in the script in that that scene forwards a plot in quite a big way it's like the jump into the sec- into the second half of the film but as well as that it's kind of the revelation to Vincennes for himself of just how into this how deep into this he is and what he's done and it's a turning point for him yeah and he, even even before before he arrives to find that and that, that's the really kind of sad part about it as well is before he arrives at the motel uh, he uh, has already way, decided that 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 he's done the wrong thing. Yeah. And it, and but it's too late. Yeah. Uh, by the way, to, to be clear, when Andrew talks about the wrong thing, he's talking about food waste. He orders yes. that brandy. He leaves he, his brandy behind. Yeah. It's a, there's a couple of I love those couple of scenes in the frolic room and then at the motel afterwards because they're they're shot and they're soundtracked very specifically in the frolic room. He uh, at one point Vincent's look up in a mirror. And of course, mirrors in films. You're, he's of course analyzing himself. Uh, but in the background, there's Dean Martin singing "Smile, Smile, yeah. Smile." 
And he's like, yeah, yeah, he's really good at smile. He's just he doesn't realize. Yeah, but he's actually sentenced a kid to death. Yeah. And then when he goes to the motel, you've got uh, and he goes into the hotel room and on the TV in the background while he's looking down at Matt Reynolds' dead yeah. body, uh, there's Johnny James singing. How important can it be? Like how important can this kid be? He's like he's collateral damage. Yeah. And Vincent realizes, I just killed this kid. Yeah. And he's wasted a brandy. And let's <laughs> forget he's wasted a shot of brandy. <laughs> <laughs> for wasting that brandy for wasting that brandy and he he got what he deserved Darren and so will you if you, if you ever waste the beverage okay. it's just a point where I have to rush at you and Darren has to hold me back <laughs> it, takes, it takes the entire intern team behind the 250 that, to hold that would be realistic <laughs> you're, you're ferocious ain't I ferocious but I mean there is this and I absolutely love that like because we talk about this being like a quintessential LA movie but it's like, also you're, sorry you're, you're, you're an Exley with a bud trying to break out <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Bexley if you will so we're getting out here but the, it's got this whole kind of LA thing but it's got like again the end of the 90s that sort of like nested reality shattered reality stuff going on like the Matrix Dark City all that sort of stuff as you get towards Millennium what is real what doesn't matter mm. and it's sandwiched within this sort of 70s paranoia because like the 70s like you, in, during the 90s you had this sort of like nostalgia for like 70s paranoia think of Oliver Stone think of stuff like the X-Files stuff yeah. like that and this feeds into that and this has, this has the same thing it has that same sort of like but it's even more effective because yes. it's you know, it's question. It's that kind of nostalgia for questioning reality, yeah. but from Hollywood itself about Hollywood. Yeah. Like Hollywood loves movies about making movies, and this is about maybe too mi- much. Yeah. yeah, in that in that they're questioning how and why they're making movies and the truth behind it, yeah. and the truth is pretty damn ugly. Yeah. And it's got that sort of thing where, and again, like a 70s conspiracy would reveal that like the government was behind it all and it's all incredibly masterminded. The closing credits. Yeah. Um, We have a little like Sting saying like we, you know, Watergate is, is, you know, the tapes were released. No, no, no. The closing credits of this movie, there's, 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 there's an after credit sequence. Yes. Where, there's two, and I. I I've never one. seen the after credit sequence. I've seen this movie countless times. I never realized the after credit sequence is there, which speaks to me as a bad moviegoer who leaves as soon as the credits start. Yeah, you've wa- you've 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 watched uh, more movies than me, but how many movies have you actually seen? <laughs> Thank you. Andy. To their yeah. completion, yeah. to the very end. <laughs> But yeah, the, the, that credit sequence is great because um, it's it's the it's DA just, just wandering around with the as star it, of uh, Badge of Honor. Yeah, they're, they're dragnet equivalent. Yeah, and I mean it's it's it a, very much is dragnet because it's just oh, yeah. Fax Man. Well, it's like, in the same way that Hush Hush is just Confidential yeah. Magazine. But yeah. it's a funny thing because it's it's the DA um, who is maybe com- um, the most complicit in this, um, who's gotten off the hook. Yeah, and and uh, retains. Retains his power and his credibility ne- and his credibility next uh, next to this actor and looking at that actor, all I could think was Ronald Reagan. But this is a movie made in ninety eight, not yeah. eighty eight. <laughs> this is a movie maybe conceived in eighty eight yeah. though. Oh yeah, well you were talking about how like the the second book in the LA trilogy was written in came out in eighty eight. So, yeah, yeah so. the uh, LA Confidential the book came out in ninety two. I mean the adap- the adaptation. Yeah. Was, was uh, I, I think you were saying was kind of first conceived in 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 in, in eighty eight that he had went to uh, well, uh, no, it's, to Elroy well, the on the basis of the second uh, yeah of the second book the second the... yeah he went to launch the second book in eighty eight that's when it came out yeah. and the third book this one came out in ninety two so no it was well it was after all this happened after Reagan so I, I can see what you mean about the resemblance and the similarities it really does. Yeah. And, and, and even though kind of like Reagan wasn't really kind of like as relevant then it seems to be it, it's definitely 
saying saying um, something about something that about, 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 yeah. about the kind of because um, it is it's a cowboy as well who rides out in front of them if I remember yeah. correctly like a rodeo cowboy as well so it has that same sort of like machismo myth making sort of quality to it because I mean and this is when Andrew I think looked down as Adam Rotten and wrote Darren stuff which is the bit where they say the manifest so, destiny uh, yeah, they're building this last freeway step westward yeah um, um, yeah we cover, point we, is what yeah. they say in the movie the end of the American dream the mm. entire plot of LA Confidential is about a scheme to build a road because it, again it's in that sort of like Chinatown way where it's yeah, focused well, this, on the story this is what we covered a lot in Chinatown in that, yeah. that whole pursuit of you know, going west and manifest destiny, and they say they literally say in this film that this is the last step westward. Yeah. After this, like this is the dream. This yeah. is the end of the dream. We've made it. Yeah, and, uh, and of course, no more and no more than in Chinatown. It turns out that the whole dream is a pile of bull and it's rotten to the core but they're building like the big scheme here is that like Pierce Pratchett is is building this road like that's why he's blackmailing like the, the it's, cast it's funny that they're already in like fantastic business models yeah. like prostitution <laughs> and drugs yeah but the real thing is like let's take all of this money from and put like, it in infrastructure <laughs> yeah yeah well you got a load of laundering yeah, yeah. but I, I love the idea that but it feels like they're doing it in order to make more money yeah not, that's it, <laughs> not because like that's the whole yeah. thing. they're building a road to nowhere as it's pointed out like they're breaking ground on the road saying this is the end of the west there's literally nowhere for this road that they're building yeah, and to go co- and of course you know it's it's los angeles the desert everything is built on sand yeah. you know it's doomed no matter what they do yeah it's it's amazing sorry to get biblical and really really grim on it but it's true no, it is, and I think it's sorry so- to all our Angelino <laughs> listeners. I, I suspect at looking at them, you have a football team. Yeah, <laughs> David Beckham, right? Like, that's, no, that's I, I, soccer. I mean an American oh, football. Like and a you made the same mistake on Chinatown as well. May I point out? Okay, sorry. Andrew gets upset when I call football soccer. Or when no, I call- no, that's fine. We can call Except it you're talking about a different you can football. Call it association okay, football, but no, yeah, they, they, they. they, they sorry, Darn. They, um, no, I was referring to. I think it's the American football. Now. But um, also, just quickly, like I have, I know I jotted down some like innocuous questions as I was watching it, and I think it's a fantastic film. It's wonderfully well constructed, and this maybe speaks to Phil's observation about the the script being more character driven than plot driven. But I have here. So was Bud just going to leave the body underneath the house rotting? Um, oh, I think this he was is on the, a mission, and he would. This he is would, the discovery of Meeks. Yeah, where he gives he gives fifty dollars from Meeks's wallet to the mother. Yeah. but he doesn't. He doesn't explain the smell. He doesn't tell her to call the police. The he doesn't. Is like she would get an exterminator, but probably doesn't have the fifty dollars to pay the <laughs> yeah. exterminator. It's um, I, um, and it's like you should get somebody to look at those. Yeah, I, I think I, I, <laughs> underneath there. Hint, hint. Like it's what a giant do you do as an exterminator when you find a dead body? <laughs> We'll never know, but hopefully. Um, but it, like the one that through one of the frequently repeated lines in the second half of the film is that you know I thought you know uh, White isn't quite as dumb as I thought, but at the same time there is a single mindedness to his pursuit that does lead him to to leave out some details like what am I going to do about that dead body? Oh shit, he's actually a key part of this investigation. Hmm. But again, it, it's not an issue with the film. It does. It's not a real problem. But I just well, uh, no. He, I, I actually he knows this Meeks. He yeah. doesn't have to wait for the no. coroner to confirm. No, he's just continuing <laughs> on his take, agenda. He's take, yeah, he's taking the wallet, and he's just. Like, In fact, that's evidence. evidence. What do you mean evidence? Like that actually feeds into the plot machinations. He takes the wallet out. If the coroner had, if the body had been brought to the coroner with the wallet still inside, they could have arrived at his identity a lot sooner and maybe saved Vincent's life. 
Yeah, well, a lot of characters in the movie are operating from incomplete assumptions. Yeah, they're operating two separate from each other. Yeah. I think if I were to kill a person, I'd probably take the wallet. <laughs> <laughs> Rather than just leave, not the leave body. it on his You dead really body. are a Budweiser, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I also love the idea of like, they, they, like not only are you disposing of a body by hiding it in the basement, which is a terrible place to hide a body. I get the sense that Stens... Budweiser also takes a lot of wallets. Yeah. Stens really isn't that good a conspirator. There's maybe a reason it took so long to branch out into the heroin trade. Where will I stash this body so it won't come back to me? I know in the basement of my, you know, my girlfriend's, girlfriend's house. house. <laughs> it's like there's no way that they'll trace it back to me, and I'll leave the ID on him as well. Um, it's like um, I didn't like her boyfriend. He was much too old for her, and you let and him also get was fresh a complete with me. garbage person. <laughs> like, <laughs> let, let, let him get fresh with me. It's like I love that phrase. Is like the most um, like he's he's like like. The, um, like for the mother just to say I didn't like her boyfriend either I mean you, 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 you wouldn't believe how bad the guy was he was literally the worst yeah. like, the, the, I, I doesn't need to kind of give like an explanation like he, he was fresh, fresh to me, me. Yeah. or he um, he's back. a little bit too old for her mm-hmm. he's like trust me this guy was rubbish he, uh, he didn't like the pancakes that I made for him he got kind of snippy about yeah. it <laughs> while he was like fudging that giant carpet <laughs> into the basement yeah it, also, it makes her sound like she's she's um, the like like just doesn't kind of like appreciate his his, his, his sense good of humor. Points. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he just we you just find didn't out click. later in the movie that like the, the boyfriend was yeah pretty awful. Yeah, um, I'm just going to say that I I love that scene where Bud discovers the body in the in the crawl space because it, it well it showcases a couple of reasons that I love LA Confidential. It um so you know it's one of the most unnerving scenes of film like for a large part you know it's all about the surface yeah. and investigating all these beautiful people and then suddenly he's down in the underbelly of this house in suburbia and he finds a rotted and quite squishy and squelchy corpse and shot as you imagine very dimly it's like a lot of fun <laughs> doesn't squishy, it though? squishy and squishy well, I mean, it does, well, like there's a point where, where he pushes on the body looking for the wallet yeah, and you actually hear a squish and it going in it goes in a little bit when he pushed it as well and again like the imagine way imagine the jingle yeah. it's squishy it's squelchy it's meeks squishy squelchy corpse it's meeks <laughs> everybody loves meeks um, but it is it's very much like it is and it's shot like a horror film as well when he opens the, yeah. the thing it's a well, it's like a jump scare it with a rat jumping yeah. out and everything and I think he bangs his head off the pipe as well above yeah. him, if I remember correctly as and well. uh, it's got this wonderful excerpt from the soundtrack by Jerry Goldsmith um, Goldsmith's soundtrack is great by it, the way it is and now, of course Goldsmith's obvious uh, obviously known for doing the scores of Chinatown yeah. as well this well, is very very Chinatown yeah yeah to a certain extent, it is. There's a certain amount of trombone in there, and, mm. or trombus rather, uh, which is also be aided by the time in which it's set. So, like you know, you've got the likes of Chet Baker and Jerry Mulligan on the soundtrack and all that because they were very popular at the time. But in this as well, more so than in Chinatown. So you've got those elements, but there's oh, also, jazz. but there's also there's also a real like horror strain to it as well. Like in that scene, you know, it's all yeah. very low and hummy, and then suddenly jump scare. But also, even at the climax, is very Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, where they're coming in through the windows and under the crawl space, but is like just sort of rotting through. Yeah. Like, and again, it, it gets there are a few in. moments like that, yeah. and it, I think it sets LA Confidential apart that it is willing to go to those dark places. 
quite like, literally as well as literally uh, but it's just also shockingly yeah. violent the dis- uh, the discovery by Exley of what's happened in the night owl he crawl he goes in slowly to through the cafe notices the blood on the floor well follows it back to the bathroom and when he opens the door and you see the bodies there and they're bloody and they have been torn open by up. the yeah. pile up and torn open by these the force of these bullets that's it's nice. Like a, that like is horror horrible. Film. Yeah. Yeah, it's a that's, proper horror movie that's moment. That's why it's this year's um, Halloween. Uh, sorry. Yeah, oh, wait, Christmas. What? Yeah, we're Christmas. We're Christmas. I know. You'd okay. confuse. You'd confu- <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> it's got lots of red in it. The red is Christmassy, right? That's yes, the, often splashed up against white backgrounds. That yeah, makes sense. That's it exactly. So this is how it's a perfect Christmas movie. But to get back to that, I think that's very clever because it does tie into, there's this interesting use of levels. And we talk about it with Pierce Pratchett and it happens with the basement and with the crawl space at the end. Yeah. And you do, it like, it's not the most, like, again, this is like using Los Angeles as a metaphor for dreams versus reality. It's the kind, or like cops who are actually hunting themselves. It's the kind of thing that could be very cliche if it was, if it was played awkwardly but it's handled so deftly that you have stuff like literally going into the ground and going underneath these Mm. establishments and like having these layers and going down becomes a metaphor for like exploring or exposing the things that lie beneath in a way that digging a golden shovel into a construction site really won't yeah and it's uh, like we're saying about chinatown about how that film went to places in terms of its narrative and yes. its use of sex and violence that things like the Hayes Code when wouldn't the movie said wouldn't allow this do, this does something similar with its use of violence there's a lot of bloodshed in it like there's one point where the gunshots from their from the cops shotguns are so powerful that they can blow people through windows. windows yeah and it's it's hard, quite We're, quite full on another moment that was like and again this is like talking about the Hayes Code and like I'm not as big a fan of like 40s film noir and classic Hollywood as most people are because I, I have that issue where I can't get past the, the sort style. of the, yeah, the thing that exists the gap that exists between what the movies are actually saying and what they're allowed to say um, and one of the things all that talk about guns yeah that's really not about guns um, but, the, as, but the thing that I really like about this there's a moment where Exley is like he's with Lynn Hmm. And she's seducing him. And there's the moment where she says to him, quite literally, screwing me is not the same as screwing Bud. And it was like, wow, this is like, this is the plot of like a good 60% of film noir articulated, where you have two men, like I'm thinking, for example, of Gilda is perhaps the best example, of two men who very clearly want to bone, but the Hayes Code won't let them. So you have this woman who's stuck in the middle between them. And I like that, like, LA Confidential is like, Maybe they don't really want to bone. Maybe they just want to if screw each other. Maybe yeah. you want to screw or even screw each other over. Whatever way yeah. you want to look well, at it, it's all equally system. applicable. Yeah. He looks he like he's got a lot to get out. He immediately is like, shut your mouth, that's subtext. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm going to call you Bud. <laughs> I want that to be it, but I don't want you to say yeah. that that's it. You've sort of ruined the magic. You've taken the magic out of the moment. <laughs> Would you get a buzz cut and wear an ill-fitting suit? Why? It's my fetish. Don't ask any yeah. questions. Um, but I, I like that the film actually sort of does that in a very playful, very cheeky sort of way. In the same way that you have, I think at one point, um, the character played by Danny DeVito, Sid, talking about, you know, how uh, it's LA Confidential. It's the name of the game. Hush, hush. And it's like, wait, is he talking about the movie that he's in or the magazine that he's publishing? And it's just enough that you can kind of see that like level of reflexiveness taking mm. place, which I really, really like. Yeah, it's... Uh... 
It's a lot going on. It is, and it's fantastic. I mean, the 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 the, the humor of the movie. The, 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 like I, I think we talked about a few examples yeah, of it. But there's it's so inappropriate other, in its way. Really. And, but, but there's even there, there's a kind of like nice moment when uh, when Vincennes and Exley. Um, get back into their car after the Lana Turner scene. And that is the, that I, I said this. I said this when we were watching the film. I said that is my favorite scene in the film, and it it's one of those wonderful moments where it comes back to that idea of illusion versus yeah. reality. Um, when, where Lana Turner, like a, a, if there's a hooker that looks like Lana Turner, that means that Lana Turner is indistinguishable from a hooker who looks like Lana Turner, and therefore there's no equivalence. There is no way to determine what is real, yeah. even when it's Lana Turner. Yeah, but that like actually. And Vincent going in to talk to Johnny Stampanato, yeah. who's there with Lana Turner. The real Johnny Stampanato did date Lana Turner. Uh, he actually died in Lana Turner's apartment. Wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And uh, but you know, it, it, once you think about it, it kind of makes sense that you know you've got a town. LA is not, it, despite its sprawl. Once you boil it down, it's not a huge town. Yeah. And it's bound to happen at some point that these characters who are dealing with people in and around the movie industry, they will come across people of that stature, of big name stars. Yeah. And so, considering that the hookers that they've been talking to, like Lynn and others, that they have to look like these actresses, it could happen at some point that they mistake one for, yeah. they mistake the real person for one of the hookers. And that's exactly what happens. And they're kind of, in an on-the-nose way, is, her, uh, is Hansen's, theme of illusion versus reality yeah. what you think someone or something is is not the case or, or or what you think it can't possibly be real it is real but you can't tell the difference anyway and you can al- yes. and in that scene you can almost see the punchline coming but he drags they drag it out just enough yeah. that the laugh is accentuated and also it's so in character for Exley as well yeah. it's like Pierce plays it so well with that self-righteous like, yeah oh he's just completely owning that moment he's on a power like, trip even if she was a prostitute it would still be a jerkish thing to do oh absolutely it's like an English farce like, in a way don't tell the hooker yeah <laughs> or what the hooker saw yeah <laughs> like he leans on you leans into her and almost like putting her down says a hooker who looks like Donna Turner is still a hooker but she only looks like Lana Turner she is Lana Turner what <laughs> come and again and it's great like I absolutely love that the film has this sense of humor and it ties back into that thing that you mentioned at the start to bring us a nice bookend but the idea that like it's a movie that could be and in many ways is like dark and like oppressive and sort of deals with some pretty heavy themes and ideas, but never gets entirely weighed down by them. No, no. no. When, 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 when the, when the, when White and Exley are having their, their last stand, um, they, they have Exley saying kind of like, um, I, 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 I never thought I'd live up to my I father. I never thought I'd live up to my father. It's like, well, he did die in the line of duty. And there's that like kind like, of like ah, moment ah. where they're just like, ah, we're about to die. Might yeah. as well go up smiling. Even, even the stuff around Exley being a dick is uh, kind of like you could almost see that as 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 four laughs. Like as you can imagine yourself, you're, 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 you're yourself laughing at that. Like the, 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 his insensitivity to to the to, 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 to the victim of rape where yeah. like he's running in he's he's he trying to get the wheelchair in, like he yeah. literally just stops he's the trying to get in the ambulance and then later on when he's wheeling her out he's like playing the kind of like concerned cop and the hero of the story heading and towards a press conference to be clear yeah, <laughs> yeah and she she's telling him kind of like in, in, in like confiding in him yeah, yeah and, and he's, he's like, like 
What do you what? mean you don't remember? Yeah. <laughs> and like turns the wheels around. I'm just out of like, hospital. Do we have to do this now? <laughs> what do you mean you don't remember? But there's even like the little touch like when everybody's left the office on Christmas where he goes to fix the clock because it doesn't match his watch. Which is just like, it's a wonderfully small little touch that's so perfectly oh, It speaks up. to his character very, very well. Even even um, Patchett as well. Like is is he they're 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 asking um, about Lynn, and um, it's like why why is um, why is Bud White why, seeing why Lynn? is Bud White seeing Lynn? It's like why, why do men, men and women, women normally see each, see each other? And then turns this Picasso like <laughs> picture, picture of, yeah. of <laughs> naked people. I love that Exley couldn't quite compute that, that that didn't quite get into Exley's head. Yeah, I, I, but it doesn't matter because Patrick just wants to obfuscate things anyway. Like when, after that, uh, Vincent says to him, so try this on, flirtily, Matt Reynolds, no. <laughs> and, and like, you know, you're going to give us, and uh, Exley says to him, you know, you know what we want, Patrick. Patrick we, is... all, we all want something. And Patrick... he gives them nothing else. They have to leave because they can't <laughs> yeah. arrest him. Yeah. It's He's great. I love Patrick. Patrick is such a cool customer. <laughs> yeah, that's like, why he's I can great. imagine when the guys come to like break his fingers and, and, <laughs> and like slit his wrist. Well, suicide, talk- he was yeah. probably playing tennis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and like they drag him off the tennis court. Well, wait a minute. Can't we talk this over? Yeah. I mean, um, I love the idea of them walking up to the door saying, "Look, like, can, can we at least have a brandy with him first? He's, a, he's probably a great host." It's like, do we have to get straight to the murder and, and fake suicide? Yeah, and also, here? Look, I mean, look at this carpet. It's lovely. I don't want to stain it with blood. It's just so nice. <laughs> um, is there anything else you want to talk about with regards to the film that we haven't discussed already? Uh, so let me much. see. There really is so much in here. Um, Isn't there though? Like, mo- 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 most of Smith's lines, like um, he's, he's kind of like, because like, they're kind of like darkly humorous as well. He's, oh, it, it, like, there's a sense that like, Smith is in re- on the joke. Yeah, he, he's like reciprocity is the key, <laughs> is, is, <laughs> the key no, to any good relationship. Kind of yeah. What reciprocity? Yeah. What's Bud getting out of this? He's just using them. It's well, he gets to, he gets to punch people, and Yay. apparently he likes punching and, uh, people. The 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 line with uh, with White when it bef- bef- um, when when he's dunking the DA's um, uh, head in the toilet, they have that call. He has that like a media callback. He seems to get comedy. He, he, he's <laughs> oh, yeah. kind of like ten yeah. more lawyers. Take a just won't come yeah. on a bus. They just won't come on a bus. <laughs> but they both get comedy at scene, uh, like Exley uh, uh, as well. Get him off me, Exley. I don't know <laughs> how. And I think you pointed out when we were watching the movie that there, there's that fantastic um, delivery of exposition. Um, oh yeah, and, like they're holding the him out done. by the legs of his buildings. Yeah, like, exactly. tell us what you know. Okay, okay, I'll tell you what. Just pull me in. <laughs> and you have it's like, like the, the audience <laughs> kind of torture him. It's like, tell me everything that's happening in this movie now. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you if you promise to pull me back in. Okay, here it goes, and there's everything. Now pull me back in. From- Hush. Hush. It's very, very. It's great. It's a great way of getting information across. Where like you don't have, like you don't have somebody sitting down and explaining the plot. You have no, no guy being dangled out of a window. Well, you know, if you gotta get it somehow. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the, I love that scene. How too. how fast as well? Kind of Exley and White become. Um, from this great like kind of team. duo, yeah. It's like even when when he throws the keys to to the car, it's oh, like yeah, a the, bad throw, great. but it's a good catch. <laughs> um, and, and then the same again in the Victory Motel when one, when uh, Bud throws a clip to Exley for he's yes. gone. Yeah, yeah they, I also I also love the moment where, where White is like seeing red and storming into the office to pound the crap out of Exley. And Exley's <laughs> like, "Oh, I'm glad you're here. Listen, let's have a look at." 
No, wait, but there's the moment wait. when he's about to smash his face into the filing cabinet repeatedly, and like Exley's response is just think, God think, damn you, God think. damn you, think. <laughs> it's just like, it like he has hope for once. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like that is it's it's a very unbrand moment for Exley. It's like how will I get out of this situation by appealing to the rationality yeah. of the man trying well, to beat well, me? Well, by that point, oh. he's already like grabbed his gun, twonked from across the head with it, pointed at him. And he just knocked it out of his hand. So that's yeah. not going to work. So now he has to appeal to his vanity by, insi- by assuming he can he, think. And, 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 it, and, it, and it's representing that, 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 that relatable thing about, about a man who's, who's jealous of a woman's ex. <laughs> ah, I see what you did there. Happy Christmas and God bless us, everyone. I don't think we're ever going to make I, it. I, 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 Relatable to the extent that someone may may have experienced it at some point. Oh, I thought you were making a joke on the, I was, on the name X. Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, before we wrap up, actually, because then to bring it back a complete full circle, the discussion that we had before we went to the spoiler zone, which was the discussion about like the difference between a movie that we love and a movie that is massively important. One of the things that's been argued about L.A. Confidential is that while it's a movie about Los Angeles and about Hollywood and stuff like that, it is perhaps in its own way a triumph, a weird late triumph of the studio system in a sense yeah. that Hansen is not necessarily seen as, and we talked about this, as an auteur in, this, in the same way that like Nolan would be in the same way that Kubrick was in the yeah. same way that Spielberg is even. But he manages to produce and bring together enough talents in terms of everybody working on the film, well, that it all just clicks. It's like, this is, like you say, it's a, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, a, With his own little studio and all. his own little studio, yeah. Uh, but it, it's true, in a way, because, like you say, this was very much Warner Brothers on board once Regency decided to finance it. And it is, this feels like something we say about movies in the 70s, it is a film that we don't see enough of anymore. A proper adult thriller with production values, with enough money thrown out and enough talent. Um, that... It's made to succeed, and it comes out really well. Like the film was budgeted at thirty-five million and grossed over one hundred twenty-five, yeah, which is phenomenal for a movie like that. And they say it's like we recently we've had movies like First Man flop. We've had movies like Widows flop. We've had like I know that they were less well received, but to give a couple of examples, Suspiria flopped, or um, what's the one Bad Times of the El Royale flopped as well. Yeah, um, and you've had this sort of discussion about whether or not that audience is still there, or that audience is so focused that you can only have like one or two. Of those sorts of films, like think the of the stars. We don't like those movies either. Yeah, like not recently. Anyway, no, not they, recently. They didn't pick up on like Phantom Thread or yeah. true, true, and uh, and it's, it's Phantom Thread's masterpiece. It's kind of interesting that you sort of like you have this movie that on the one hand is about like the horrors of this system and like the you know sort of like the the illusion of image and control and the blending of fictionality and reality and how like this is not necessarily a good thing, but you have at the same time. It perhaps more than most movies on, you know, on this list, for example, on other lists, like that will be considered among the best movies ever made, is very much a product of the studio system in the 90s. Mm. And you have that interesting, like, contrast. I think that, like, the name, and I'm going to apologize, I'm going to mangle the pronunciation. I'll of this, probably correct it. But Joe uh, Mangala. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Manola Dargis. Manola Dargis. Mar- Dargis, yeah, who wrote a book, literally wrote the book, the BFI Guide to it, yeah. has talked about like what she loves about the film is that it feels, despite the fact it was made in 1997 and could only have been made in like 19, it couldn't have been made in the 40s or 50s, no. it still feels like a product of that sort of style of filmmaking. Uh, absolutely. I mean, Hansen knows the films he's referencing. He knows, like, because he knows the time and he knows the place. And he's 
like he was he's actually he was a film critic himself before he became a filmmaker so like Bogdanovich or yeah. like as we talked about the uh, Catch a Song Coup Co. yeah absolutely so uh, you should hire myself and Phil and Andrew to make movies absolutely well, not me <laughs> yeah like this is he's a, he knows the films he wants to emulate he knows the styles he wants to emulate and if somebody goes into you with that vision like he had with the photo pitch or whatever you're as well to give him that chance, especially if he's armed with that good a script. Yeah. Like the mm. scripts can be out there. You just have to be willing to give enough money to the right people. To and do you should it. note that like 30, $35 million, even adjusted for inflation, isn't an absurd amount of money to make for a movie like this. This is a period piece. It's a period in- piece with a huge cast. Well, like, uh, it's, it costs. They, while while you were saying kind of like a lot of period pieces are flops, the Academy really loves. Yeah, they do. Like but if it, it's good it's, enough for the Academy, as it, it it'll generate its own audience. It depends. Yeah. Uh, the Academy it, like awards not necessarily going to have the cachet they used to. Like you mentioned, Phantom Thread that didn't make I as think money for back. Baby Boomers though, they they like I I I think eventually kind of like Baby Boomers watching kind of like. Um, um, Oscar um, picks. They were kind of like they they'd have heard of it because yeah. of, it, of 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 all of the nominations. Maybe. Well, this... uh, speaking of uh, awards, and just to put a nice little trivia point, uh, Brian Helgeland, the co-writer, is one of is he's at that rare distinction of winning both an Oscar and a Razzie in the same year. What did he win the Razzie for? The Postman. <laughs> Sorry, um, the postman is famously like Waterworld couldn't kill Kevin Costner's career, but the, but the postman, postman managed did. it. Yeah, boy, um, that's quite. A, that, he, he must have been on a real even keel with Warner Brothers well, I mean, that year. So did Sandra, Sandra Bullock won the actress and uh, um, act, yeah, yeah, both at them. the Razzies and at the Oscars in the same year, if I remember True. correctly as yeah, well. It's, it's an elite and gave, and gave a speech as well at the Razzies, yeah, um, yeah. which is great. It's it was really sport. it's fantastic because it consisted of like I get you hated the movie. But what choice could you have made as a performer that would have resulted in a better film? Mm. Tell me that. Which well, is quite a nice like way to... Uh, no, that's it. it for didn't... what movie? Um, for All About Steve, starring Bradley Cooper. Okay. So she becomes... She's a stalker ex-girlfriend of Bradley Cooper's character. Yeah. Uh, now, that's it. It didn't necessarily harm Helgeland's career. He, he also wrote Mystic River after this. Mystic River's great. Love yeah. Mystic River. It's not on the 250. I'm surprised. I'm actually... Because a lot of Eastwood films are like Gran Torino, Unforgiven. That one isn't, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, he also wrote and directed uh, Knight's Tale and uh, Legends, the uh, Tom Hardy Cray twins. Okay. Movie. That's... A solid movie. Yeah, uh, hmm, I think it might be generous. Uh, he currently, his uh, latest script, uh, Gemini Man, is being uh, filmed by Ang Lee with uh, Will Smith and Clive Owen. That's an interesting combination. Interesting, eh? Um, but before Legend is perhaps a better maybe. Is it a better written movie than it is a movie? Maybe That's, I don't know. It's very old fashioned and very Scorsese influenced, and I quite liked it for what it was. Um, as in, like, I thought it was a. Very, I, I quite like the performances of Hardy. Um, I quite and like Hardy. and Hardy, um, the Hardy books, if you will. Um, and I quite like the style of it. But it, it again, it, it's a very mid-tier gangster film. It, it needed it, a Curtis Hanson, maybe. Maybe it did. Um, but before we go, just like and to bring it back to that discussion about like awards fair and stuff like that. Like, what's interesting, and again, I don't want to seem too nostalgic. I don't want to seem too old-fashioned. Darren, old man, shaking his fist at clouds. But, he says, um, one of the interesting things is that it feels like in the past 20 years, we've sort of moved away from the idea where films could be successful financially 
and um, earn, like win at the Oscars as well. Where you could have movies like this, which, as you pointed out, were adult, an adult-focused film that is financially successful. Critically successful. Critically successful. And awards. And awards-friendly at yeah. the same time. And, like, I mean, it's weird that you kind of have it this year with A Star Is Born, maybe? Which is a film that myself yeah. and Andrew did not necessarily care for to a um, great extent. It's fine. Yeah, no and, more than that. But it's weird that that's a rarity. That almost feels like a unicorn. In fact, you like get, a lot of people yeah. talk about like why they like A Star Is Born so much is because it managed to do that. Because it managed to be a rare film that was adult focused and financially successful and critically successful and will sweep the awards. Well, I mean, I you, know, get, I you get one that was fairly childish. Like you mean yeah. you get uh, you get one film like that every year. Oh, this yeah. is the space reserved for The Martian in 2015. Yeah, but then... Scott Mendelssohn yeah. has made this point, I think, yeah. Yeah, or something like... Maybe, maybe, even, maybe even La La Land to an extent, yeah. or something like that. Oh, it's, um, you know... There's something like that comes on just every year that audiences like and critics like, and it makes a lot of money. Yeah. But they it's are... Just, they seem to be rarer than they yeah, were. Maybe. But then again, I think a lot of these things, you know, because they might be aimed towards more adults or something like that, um, they're probably going online as opposed to going to theatres. Yes, Netflix. The wonders of Netflix, actually. Hmm. We may or may not be discussing a Netflix movie in the top 10 at some... And sorry, in the top 250 at some point in the near future. But I guess this about wraps it up. Unless there's anything else that somebody wants to talk about with regards to the film. Something we haven't covered already. Uh, not a lot. Just to say that it does... Like, I mean, I suppose we made the point in the... Um in our discussion of like the cinematography, uh, it makes LA look great, yeah. even though not all the locations are there. Uh, the Victory Motel had to be constructed, and um, uh, Janine Oppelwald, the uh, the uh, production designer, said that it was a rarity to find locations in LA that weren't bulldozed yeah. because that's what they do. And the famous tower, they had to shoot very carefully around the tower. Uh, which uh, tower? The 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 clock tower, the famous clock tower, the, the sort of the city hall, because when oh, it was yeah. built, it was the tallest building in Los Angeles. But taller buildings have been built That's since. The, oh, they yeah. choose their things carefully. When you mentioned Los Angeles playing itself, um, famously, this inspired Tom Anderson's documentary about Los Angeles. Yeah, and he um, said he of course said that this is basically a, a remake of Chinatown. Yeah, which you can I can see where he's coming. And from. he really hated it because it, he said that it, it fictionalized the history of Los Angeles and stuff like that, which he really objected to the way that Los Angeles is presented. We talked a little bit about it in the Chinatown episode, yeah, so yeah. I won't go into it again. But about how Los Angeles is like conspiratorial and sort of like how its its mythic history is just you know sort of yeah. I think you have to fictionalize to be on the two fifty. Yes, his documentaries aren't Are allowed. <laughs> All right, uh-huh. that about wraps it up. But before we go, we ask our guests to share something with the audience that they might enjoy. And because this is a Christmas episode, maybe we can mention something Christmassy for our listeners at home if they want something or not. Or not. I mean, it's it's a free for all. I would say enjoy Christmas. Enjoy your family. Have a lovely dinner. You know, appreciate the little things in life. And Kwanzaa. And Kwanzaa. And Tess. Yep. And uh, all sorts of other holidays as well. There's like anything non-denominational holiday. Secular Christmas. So basically, hats off to Hanukkah. St. Stephen's Day, Boxing Day, whatever you want to call it. Take that time and appreciate it. That's what I'm saying. Have a happy holiday. This almost feels like the ending to LA Confidential. Perhaps falsely optimistic, but we appreciate it anyway. <laughs> Darren is the winking cowboy. Yeah, on the horse. Does that make you the DA or the uh, or the actor? Okay. Well, in that case, then, if people are looking for a bit more Phil, a bit more Andrew in their lives, where can they find you guys? Uh Oh, you don't want, like, my home address, do you? Well, yeah, if, if you, you want, want to share it, it I mean, yeah. like, yeah. You find out that people wouldn't have objected to having their names and addresses in phone books once upon a time, but now... (laughs) 
I could just, reveal one of my email addresses, maybe. Oh, okay. <laughs> then that would be the one that we contact through the 250. Yeah. I need to set up a 250 email address. Thank you for reminding me. Okay. but You, can, you, fi- you can find me on Twitter at CynicalFilm. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at A-Q-U-I-N-N-I-U-Q-A. Um, lo- um, look after each other. Um, uh, sh- 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 show, um, show a little bit um, what the, um, what I suppose the, 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 I mean, we, 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 we can be very cynical, but, and, and, and there's a lot of things that people don't like about Christmas. But I, I, I suppose in, 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 it's, in its best forms, it's a kind of an exhortation to, to kind of be kind and have like a spirit of generosity towards. I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm sort of kind of chuckling at that and not because it's a great sentiment and I really agree with it. But I watched Netflix release The Christmas Chronicles uh, back in November starring Kurt Russell as Santa Claus. Um, and it's quite an interesting film in many ways. It's like a 90s children's film that doesn't exist anymore. But it's filtered through that lens of like Nolinian determinism. Where the idea is that you have to have everything in the movie has to make thematic sense. So, for example, you have a sequence where Santa Claus can rig a car radio to pick up cop radio signals because I'm the greatest toy maker in the world. And you have another moment where police officers are arresting Santa and there's sounds in the distance and they go, wait, what, what, what's that? And then Santa Claus leans in the frame and says, it's sleigh bells. Weren't you listening? Um, but you have like this whole argument about Christmas where Santa Claus is like, people need Christmas. To show them how good they can be. Uh, which is, you know, I feel like that's a sentiment as well. It's maybe more forceful than Andrews be kind to each other. But yeah, I think maybe maybe Kurt Russell's dad I'd like to push. push. Santa Claus. It speaks for all of us and says people need Christmas to remind them of how good they can be. Yeah, and be careful, um, be careful this season for honey traps. Um, don't let yourself uh, be blackmailed. Beware of, of prostitutes who may or may not.